Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Well, hello there, and Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, thank you for joining me for the Alone Together for Christmas uh, live stream event this year in 2022. I uh, guess I'll cover a few things before we begin taking questions. Uh, first of all, why am I dressed this way? Well, because it's Christmas, and I thought I'd wear something festive for the live stream, but I don't have Santa Claus stuff, so... I wore what I had, buckskin. Um, now, a few things to begin. The the reason I started doing this last year is because, um, like a lot of people, I don't have uh, family here in the area where I live. And so, um, you know, I have friends who will invite me over for Christmas and things like that. But I thought, you know, a lot of people don't have anybody to be with. And, you know, let's 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 change that. Let's get together. Let's have an online Christmas party. So nobody has to be alone. And it's not just for people who, uh, who don't have anyone to be with, but it's, it's principally for them, but it's also for everybody. So you're welcome here, no matter who you are, just play nice. Now I will be answering questions from people. And I saw someone in the chat asking if uh, there are super chats and currently I'm not set up for that. So, um, so, you know, we don't have that functionality. What I ask you to do, if you have a question for me to make it easier for me to find the question is put a capital Q and a colon or a dash or something before your question. That way I can scroll down the chat looking for the initial cues to tell me there's a question I should look for. Um, I also uh, am planning for people who have asked, I'm planning on making this a regular event. I already have plans for some new additions to to make uh, to the 2023 Alone for Together for Christmas live stream. So um, I am planning on doing this in the future. And I got a really nice surprise after I announced this. I only announced it a couple of days ago. Um, and really quickly, one of the sponsors for Mysterious World, a firm called Deliver Contacts, uh, said that they wanted to sponsor the live stream. And so I want to give a shout out to Deliver Contacts. They're one of our regular sponsors. You'll hear their uh, sponsorship in every regular episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. And uh, they wanted to be part of this special holiday event. And so thank you very much, Deliver Contacts, for your sponsorship. And if you need contacts, you can get them shipped to you by Deliver Contacts. Um, It's a service they provide for people all over the place. So do check them out if you're a contact user. Let's see, what are we going to do in this mysterious, in, in this live chat? Well, as I said, I'll be answering some questions. But first, as a special little Christmas treat, I thought I'd give people a preview of what's going to be coming up on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World next year. Now, next um, next Sunday is New Year's Day. And um, so for the Friday preceding it, we're going to have New Year's Weird Questions, which is a 
tradition that we've started. But then in January, we're going to be having all new episodes. And the first two episodes in January are interviews with a very famous Egyptologist named Dr. Bob Breyer. In, and he's wonderful. He's a really great author and one of the best teachers I've ever seen. I've done his great courses, History of Ancient Egypt, multiple times, and he's really good. Um, but in the first episode of the new year, we're going to be talking with him about the Egyptian afterlife what the Egyptians believed happened after death. And then in the second episode of the new year, we're going to be talking with him about mummies and he knows a lot about mummies. And there are some, there's an interesting twist in that story. So uh, you can look forward to that. Then in the third week of January, we're going to be doing a story set here in San Diego, only a little more than a hundred years ago. We're going to be talking about a rainmaker a guy who would attempt to make it rain and had success doing that, it seems. His name was Charles Hatfield, and he was the most famous rainmaker of all time. Then for the last week in January, we're going to be uh, talking about giants, including biblical giants and giants in folklore and the science of giants and what causes gigantism and just how big humans can actually get. For the first week in February, we're going to be looking at a kind of event we haven't looked at on the show before. It's what's known as a time slip, where people seem to slip backwards in time. And we're going to be talking about the most, to introduce this topic, we're going to be talking about the most famous time slip of them all. It's known as the Versailles time slip. And it happened in the early 20th century when a couple of English women were at the Royal Palace and Gardens in Versailles and seemed to slip back in time. And they they wrote about it. And we'll be talking about that. For the second week in February, we're going to be doing a science mystery. A while back, we had an episode called um, How We Found the Universe, which was a history of ideas about how we learned this basic structure of the universe that we're on a planet orbiting a star in a galaxy in a sea of galaxies. That's something we actually weren't sure about. We didn't really know that until the 20th century. And so we covered that story, but now we're going to be doing a sequel to it called starts with a bang, where we talk about what happened next in cosmology and how we learned about the big bang. So uh, we'll be covering that the second week of February. And then for the second two weeks in February, we're going to have uh, Paul Smith back on the program. He's one of the original government psychic spies. He's known as a remote viewer, but this time we're not going to be talking to him about remote viewing. Uh, we, we've already done that. And instead, we're going to be talking with him about another practice that the government's psychic spying Stargate program used, dowsing. And so in the third week of February, we're going to be talking about the background to dowsing, including some of Paul's experiences and how he used it for the government, as well as the different types of dowsing that exist. And then in the last week of February, we're going to look at dowsing with Paul from the faith and reason perspectives. Um, you know, we'll cover it under the reason perspective. We'll cover what scientific studies have said about it. And we'll also talk about the faith perspective. And I was really surprised 
when I started researching the faith perspective um, on dowsing, what the Catholic faith has had to say about dowsing, what the church has said officially about it. I was really surprised, and I think you are likely to be really surprised, too, unless um, unless you've already done prior research on that. So you'll definitely want to listen to that. Now, to start us off for um, for questions today, I had one come in uh, from a woman named Jennifer. And so I already had that one. I'll do that one first. She says, if so many knew of Jesus's birth. So that would be Mary and Joseph, the the other family members, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the shepherds who showed up. She says, if so many people knew of Jesus's birth, how was he not well known before his ministry started? And I think the answer to that is that he was well known in some circles. He was well known in his in the Holy Family's circle. He would have been well known in Nazareth, where he grew up. He he may have been well known in Bethlehem. Um, you know, since the family apparently had members there and would occasionally visit there. So he may have been well known in those circles, but I don't know that the um, I don't know that it was talked about too much further than that. Uh, these communities were were pretty isolated. And so and they didn't have modern means of communication. They didn't have newspapers. And even if they had newspapers, you know, Jesus didn't appear in any. And so um, word would have only spread by word of mouth about Jesus. And I'm sure that there were people in different circles who had heard various things about Jesus as a child. But he was living pretty quietly. He was, you know, working as an apprentice carpenter or builder. And he wasn't leading a revolution. He wasn't working lots of miracles. And so, you know, for the first about 30 years of his life, some people would have known about him, but but not thousands of people. And uh, so I think that's the basic answer. Now, before I start answering questions, I'm going to scroll back through the uh, through the chat stream here and start looking for Q&A's, but I'm also going to take a drink because since it's Christmas, I decided I would get some eggnog. And so I'm going to be having some eggnog here. This stuff miraculously shows up in the stores this time of year. Oh, this is quite thick. There we go. I also have some other treats I may have. Mm. Sweet and <clears throat> sweet and cinnamony and eggy. So uh good stuff. And let's see. Hang on just a second. Okay, to the Q&A. Oh, by the way, for people who may wonder, um not sure exactly how we're going to how long we're going to go today. It'll be at least an hour, probably two, maybe a little more. We'll see. Depends on how many questions y'all have. 
Uh, just scrolling. Here we go. Cliff Hilburn says, what's your take on James Tabor? Specifically, his opinions on the Jesus story being based on the teacher from the Dead Sea slash Qumran scrolls. Um, James Tabor is a um, a highly eccentric individual who has, you know, studied the Bible. Um, he he could be considered a biblical scholar, but his views are very eccentric and are not widely accepted in mainstream biblical scholarship in um, he's not the first person that I'm aware of to claim a link between Jesus and the figure that's mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls known as the teacher of righteousness. The teacher of righteousness did not found the Dead Sea Scrolls community, but apparently played a role in guiding it in its early history. And he's one of several figures. Unfortunately, we don't know the name of the teacher of righteousness. He's only referred to in the scrolls as the teacher of righteousness. And he's um, he's pitted against some other figures from his period, which was more than 100 years before the time of Christ. And they're also only known by name by descriptions. None of their names are given in the scrolls. One of them is called the wicked priest. And we have uh, so that the wicked priest is one of the enemies of the teacher of righteousness. And we have a, we have some idea of who the wicked priest was. He would have been one of the Hasmonean priest Kings that was ruling Israel at the time. And that was serving at the temple as high priest. He may have, for example, been Alexander Janaeus, but he was one of the, um, one of the Hasmonean priest Kings of the period. There's also another figure whose name I just love. Um, another one of the enemies of the teacher of righteousness is a guy known as the spouter of lies. And so, you know, his name itself tells you he's a bad dude and you're going to want to watch out for the spouter of lies. But um, we don't have, uh, we don't know his name. What we do know is that these figures lived between 160 and 100 or so BC. And that's more than a hundred years before the time of Christ. So the idea that the teacher of righteousness could simply be Jesus, which was an idea proposed by a very eccentric um, Australian individual. Um, oh, what I'm blanking on her name now. It, she was all she she had this crazy idea about how the Pacer uh, method worked, and she would talk about it constantly, even though it had no relationship to the actual way the Pacer method works. Um, Barbara something. Anyway, I know she claimed Jesus and the teacher of righteousness were just the same individual. If James Tabor says that, well, they lived in two different centuries, so they wouldn't be the same. Um, but if he's merely claiming the story of Jesus is based on the teacher of righteousness, I would say that that that's uh, problematic because we have good historical evidence that Jesus did exist and that he lived in the first century A.D. So the story of Jesus is based on 
the historical Jesus, not on another figure. Now, that doesn't mean that people couldn't have used ideas about the teacher of righteousness or accounts of him in how they told their stories about Jesus, just like, you know, you can you can highlight similarities between different figures um, without falsifying what you're saying about those figures. There's a famous, for example, um, uh, set of biographies from the ancient world by the author Plutarch, and they're known as the Parallel Lives. And what Plutarch does in the Parallel Lives is he he takes a Roman figure and a Greek figure, and he writes biographies of them. And he does this for multiple figures, but there's always a Roman figure and a Greek figure that are similar in various ways. And he talks about and plays up those similarities to show you how these two different historical figures had similar experiences and did similar things. And I can imagine someone today. You know, if if they were writing biographies of famous presidents, they in telling their story of Abraham Lincoln, they might highlight Lincoln's parallels to George Washington and say, look, these similar things happen to these two great presidents. And I find that meaningful. And in the same way, people in the ancient world could highlight similarities between different figures. And so if Tabor is merely claiming that that in retelling what happened with Jesus, people highlighted things that had happened to the teacher of righteousness. Well, that's possible. I couldn't rule that out. I'd like to see his evidence because the Jesus movement and the Dead Sea Scrolls movement were quite different. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls movement were legal fundamentalists. They were intensely preoccupied with ritual purity and the Jewish law. Um, in fact, that's the, to give you an idea of how extreme they were in their concern for ritual purity. If you were a member of the Dead Sea Scrolls community, you were not allowed to poop on the Sabbath. So no pooping on the Sabbath. Now, that is commitment whatever else you want to say about him. It's also legally crazy. Moses didn't say anything about not pooping on the Sabbath. Um, I assume they, they ate light for a day or two before the Sabbath. Um, they also had separated from the Jerusalem temple because they viewed the Jerusalem temple as inadequately um, as having an inadequate understanding of the holiness required by the law of Moses. For example, one of their criticisms of the temple was that the, uh, the priests at the temple would shift the days of certain holidays so that they wouldn't fall on the Sabbath. You know, we have that, we have something like that right now. You know, this year Christmas is on a Sunday. And um, and the same kind of thing would happen in ancient Israel. But to keep the celebration of the Sabbath distinct from the annual feasts, the priests of the temple would would sometimes move the annual feast so that it didn't fall on the Sabbath. And you could have two celebrations instead of just one. And to the Dead Sea Scrolls community, that was anathema. So they were very concerned about the Jewish law. And you know who wasn't that big a nitpicker about the Jewish law? 
Jesus of Nazareth. Um, he, 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 in talking with, in Matthew 23 and talking to the Pharisees, he says, you know, y'all are tithing a, a, a tenth of, of, of your mint from your, from your little herb garden. And okay, that's great, but you should really be concerned about the greater matters of the law. You should be majoring in the majors like love and mercy not majoring in the minors. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls community majored in the minors even more than the Pharisees did. And so um, so we have really good evidence that the Jesus movement and the Dead Sea Scrolls movement were distinct, that they were they did not share uh, much of a common ideology. There were some similarities, but they were fundamentally a different movement. And therefore, I would want to know what your evidence is that Christians were shaping the story of Jesus after the teacher of righteousness when he's a leader in a different movement that, and he's been dead for 100 years. So that would be my question. Let's see. Do I have so retro, uh, asks, do I have any favorite video games? The answer is no. Um, I did play some video games when I was young, when I was growing up, but I haven't played video games in years. And the basic reason is that it would take me um, a long time to get good. And, you know, in order to be good at something, you have to be bad at it for a long time. And so if I were going to get good at video games, it would be a huge time sink for me. And I have other things that I'm devoting my time to. So I, I, I'm aware of video games. I, I try to keep up a little bit with video game culture. Um, and I'm occasionally tempted to play video games, but I really don't because I just don't have the time. I don't want to have to devote the, the amount of effort that it would require for me to get good to where it would actually be fun for me. But I'm glad that it's, it, it, I'm glad it appears to be fun for you. That's awesome. Let's see. Here's one that has two parts from Absurd Scandal. Um, and I may be reading these backwards, but that's okay. Part one says, would the population of those who were saved have to be small enough to fit into the habitable, habitable land of the earth that the earth can provide? Or can it exceed? If so, will God put the rest on other planets after the new creation? What about those who don't want to leave earth behind? This is kind of like the question of the woman with the eight husbands who will she be married to in eternity? Yeah, there is a little bit of a similarity there um, in that they're both thinking of the eternal order as quite similar to the present order of things. You know, the Sadducees who didn't actually believe in the resurrection were envisioning the new order as one where people would still be married. And Jesus says, actually, no, they're not still going to be married. They're, people are going to be like angels. Well, um, what we what we can say with confidence is that um, paradise, to quote Laurie Anderson, is exactly like where you are right now, only much, much better. And beyond that, it gets fuzzy. 
Um, so one thing that I would point out is that there seems to be a difference. I mean, at least based on the appearance that is generated from various biblical texts that deal with the the new order of things, um, it there appears to be a difference in the mechanics of space and time because uh, St. Paul says in First Thessalonians 4 that when Christ returns, all Christians living and dead will be caught up to be with him and we will be with the Lord forever. Well, even in the first century, that was thousands of people. And today it would be millions or even billions. And and so um, that if we're going to be able to be with Jesus, then with must mean something very different than what it presently means. Also, we know that Jesus was able to pass through solid objects, like when he emerged from the tomb, even though the stone was still sealed. That's why the tomb was found empty. Or when he appeared among the disciples, even though the doors were locked. And so the limitations that we have concerning physical bodies and how many can be in a given space may simply not apply. Um, You know, I would say that the new order of things after the resurrection will be something that's fundamentally unimaginable to us at present. Um, But the indications that we have would point to uh, it being radically different and radically better. And it may be possible for God to fit huge numbers of people onto the new earth, um, even in in ways that couldn't be done today. People may be able to occupy the same space without interfering with each other. Also, the new earth could be bigger. And as you allude to, God could could have some people off planet. And because heaven is going to be perfect, um, if 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 you get to be one of the outer space uh, colonists of heaven, you're going to love it. It's not going to be a disappointment. It's like, oh, I wanted to stay on Earth. It, you know, presumably also you'd be able to move around the cosmos and visit Earth whenever you wanted. So um, I can't I can't give a definitive answer to the question. But what I can say is whatever happens, the population issue will not be a problem in heaven. Janez Noak says, what is your opinion on traditionalism and modernism within the church in the current time? And, well, I would say that um, in order to answer the question meaningfully, you have to sort of supply definitions because the term traditionalism has can be understood in multiple different ways. Uh, so can the term modernism. Um, traditionalism can be understood in the sense of just someone who has an attachment to traditional rituals, traditional liturgical forms, traditional customs, traditional theological ideas, and all of that's fine. On the other hand, tradition can be understood to mean someone who has a deep-seated antipathy 
towards the Second Vatican Council and the current magisterium and the post-Vatican II popes. And if and that's that's not good because the magisterium is guided by the Holy Spirit in the conciliar and post-conciliar era, just like it was in the pre-conciliar era. Neither should be pitted against the other and neither should be treated as, well, this is horrible, you know, whether you're treating the pre conciliar magisterium is horrible like modernists would or the post-conciliar magisterium is horrible like some traditionalists do so so um so it's going to depend on the type of traditionalism you're talking about in the same way you know the term modernism it gets used as especially in the traditionalist community as an insult word and it does not these days get used by people for themselves. People don't say, oh, I am a modernist. Um, that may have happened at one time, but like a century ago. These days, people of that perspective tend to describe themselves as progressive. And progressive, like traditionalist, can mean different things. If you mean you prefer the, um, the post-Vatican II order of liturgy, or if you prefer, um, you know, different devotions than ones that were traditional, like maybe you have a charismatic spirituality or something. All that's OK, too. The church is a big tent. But if by modernist or progressive, you mean someone who rejects teachings of the church, especially infallible ones, that is most definitely not OK. So in order to answer the question meaningfully, you have to kind of say what kind of people you're talking about with more precision. Some, um, As long as someone is faithful to the teachings of the church and respectful of other Catholics and their preferences for what they prefer in terms of liturgical practice and customs and devotions and so forth, um, then, then you're fundamentally okay. But if you're starting to hate other Catholics for their preferences, and if you're starting to reject the magisterium, whether it's the preconciliar or the postconciliar magisterium, then those are problems. Uh, let's see. Brendan Quinn says, "What was the canticle said at mass between the readings?" Oh, um, that is something. I don't have that answer at the top of my head. Also, it didn't happen in my parish in the Christmas liturgy that I went to. Um, I could look it up, but I don't want to take time in the live stream to do the research. So, Fred, I can't help you with that. You could try Googling it. Let's see. The first other says, what do you think of animal psychic powers? Are they real? Will mysterious world cover them? And if animals aren't rational, what would ground them? Perhaps basic intentionality in animals grounds them. Okay, so there have been some studies that have been done of, of do animals display um, something like ESP. Uh, now, we know that animals have um, senses, different animals have different senses that we don't, or at least that we don't have in a usable way. For example, some senses, some uh, birds have, a, have an electromagnetic sense. 
where they can sense electromagnetic fields and use them to navigate the Earth in their migration routes. Um, others have the ability to sense electrical fields. Some of them can sense where north is. Um, and to a human, those abilities could look like some kind of ESP because we don't have those senses. However, in those cases, we know that these animal senses are just natural. Um, they, they have additional sensory apparatus that we don't that allow them to use these senses. And they're still natural senses, even though they're, they're ones that, that humans don't have. So they're not actually ex, extra sensory perception, meaning perception that occurs extra or outside the senses. They're, these are just expanded physical senses. Well, there, there have been studies, though, and uh, there's an individual named Rupert Sheldrake, who is particularly uh, famous for having studied this, where some animals seem to have something like what we would call ESP in humans. Now, an example that some animals are famous for is seeming to be able to sense earthquakes. You know, when there's an earthquake coming on, reportedly dogs and cats and other animals may get jittery and, and you know, act out in various ways. Well, um, that could be precognition, which would be a form of ESP, although it could also just be an additional physical sense, like maybe there are little vibrations that, um, that precede earthquakes and animals are able to pick up on these physical vibrations, whereas humans don't notice them. In which case, it would just be another natural sense, an earthquake sense, not ESP. But Sheldrake has done studies on um, on dogs that seem to know when their owners are coming home. And there's a lot of reports of this, and he's actually studied it with specific dogs where they did randomized trials. So you have a dog that is known for picking up on when its owner, in this case, it was a woman, uh, when she's getting ready to come home, the dog perks up and goes to the door and looks out the window. And, and so they did randomized trials where they would take the woman away and have her come back at random times of day and watch what the dog did. And to make sure it wasn't like the dog is listening for her car and can, can tell when her car is coming, they would bring her back home different ways. Sometimes she'd drive her car back. Sometimes she'd take the bus back. Sometimes it would be a taxi. Sometimes it would be something else. And they would see what the dog did and whether the way she came back affected it. And what they found was that on, in terms of statistical averages, the dog knew when she was coming home. Um, at least the dog went to the window and looked for her in ways it didn't when she was not on her way home. But once she made the decision to come home, the dog would go to the window and wait for her. And it didn't matter what time it was. This was the, the, these were random times. It didn't matter the way she came back. And so Sheldrake has this argument that the dog has something that's essentially ESP. It may be a form of telepathy with its owner. 
And so there there have been some studies and I, I will be reporting on them in the future on Mysterious World. I have not um, researched. I haven't read the studies in detail at this point. So I do have Sheldrake's, Sheldrake's book, Dogs Who Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. Um, but I haven't sat down and studied it in detail. So I don't have a firm opinion. Um, so we'll we'll have to see, but I'll let you make your own mind up when I'm able to present the evidence. Another drink I have is Mountain Zevia, which has a little bit of caffeine. Let's see. Dennis O'Corn says, why do you believe in evolution? Well, um, evolution is the hypothesis. I should say this. Evolution is a hypothesis the church does not have a problem with. Uh, that's very clear um, from magisterial documents uh, going back to 1950. It's even longer in the Catholic written tradition, uh, in, you know, the theological literature. But as of 1950, you had Pope Pius XII um, saying that within certain limits, Catholics, you know, didn't need to have a problem entertaining the idea of human evolution. Now, he, and this is a point that's often missed in the encyclical where he dealt with this, the encyclical is called Humanae Generis, but in the encyclical, he's not dealing with evolution in general. He doesn't really care about evolution in general. You can, he, he, you can believe that whatever you want. He's concerned with human evolution. And he says with, um, with a few qualifiers, um, Catholics can entertain the hypothesis of human evolution. There's subsequently been additional doctrinal development. The church has become uh, more aware of more recent scientific studies that have supported evolution, including on the genetic level. This is something that um, really has come into flower in the last 20 to 30 years. We have, if you study the human genome, which is the, um, you know, the package of genes that each one of us is born with. We have loads of genes that are in common with other organisms. And you can tell that there is a lineage when you compare the genomes of different organisms. You can tell that there is a, a lineage to how these genes work. For example, um, humans have certain Excuse me, got a frog in my throat. Um, humans have certain genes that um, that let's say make their eyes. Some of them are opsin genes, and if you look at other life forms, you can see they have a version of those same genes. But in some species, the the relevant gene, uh, a relevant gene, got broke. And that explains why their vision is a little bit different than ours. In some cases, it's the human gene that got broke. And that's why our senses aren't quite as good as some other animal. But by carefully studying the genomics of humans and other species, you can trace the lineage and, uh, and see how different organisms are related to each other genetically. And that provides a strong argument that they are 
biologically related to each other since it's reproductive activity that is the way in which genes get passed on. And at least it's the primary way. There is sometimes horizontal gene transfer, but that's not going to explain what we see. So um, so we have good evidence on the genetic level that um, to cite just one line of evidence, there are others, but to cite just one line of evidence, we have good evidence on the genetic level that humans are biologically related to other organisms. We even have things in us in our genetic code, like viruses that existed back in the days of the dinosaurs. And those viruses ended up in the genetic codes of animals that were alive at the time, and they've been passed on to us. And so we can see this whole paleontological history of our species in our genes. And it indicates, at least strongly suggests scientifically, that we're biologically related to other species. So that's uh, why I would favor evolution. It's a species that is not, it's a theory that is not prohibited by the church. And the scientific evidence seems to support it, including on the genetic level. Religious stuff says, let's say, and it looks like there's a second part to this question. Um, religious religious stuff says, let's say I know a priest who's demonstrated reading hearts and made prophecies which came true, but then one which didn't come true and wasn't conditional, was wholly false, so no subconscious misinterpretation of parts can explain it. How do we interpret this under the assumption false prophecies can't make true prophecies, but true prophets can't make a single wrong one? Okay, so the um, the true prophets can't make a single wrong prophecy is an idea that is not really is not is not really firmly grounded biblically. When you when you look at the texts, so the relevant texts are in Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. When you look at the relevant texts, it says that when a prophet appoints a sign, means he makes a prediction, and the sign does not come to pass, then you know that's a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. But that's, that doesn't mean the prophet can't make mistakes. Um, now, there he, he may at times speak presumptuously. He may have thought he heard God telling him something and he said it and announced it to other people and really it wasn't God. But God may speak to him on other occasions. So the kind of one strike and you're out rule that you often hear articulated, especially you hear this articulated in a lot of Protestant circles. Um, it's 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 not really firmly grounded. Uh, now, you, it's good religiously stuff that you mentioned conditional prophecies, because oftentimes prophecies are conditional. Uh, God himself makes this point. He, say, he, in fact, tells us there can be implied conditions. Um, he says in Ezekiel, if I ever say I'm going to bless a city and they disobey me, I'm going to revoke the blessing. So he's letting you know there's an implied condition always. If if he's promising blessings, it's conditional on obedience. And if you disobey, you're going to forfeit the blessing. And then the reverse of that is true as well. Um, but 
I would have to say that uh, given the complexity of situations like this, um, I would have to know the priest or at least study the situation in which the priest um, made this false prediction. Uh, I'd have to know the details of it because I can imagine multiple possible explanations for why it went wrong. I mean, one thing I'd want to say is, well, could there be a conditional element here? I'd also want to know what's his record? Uh, Has he made, you know, does he have a good record of being able to uh, to make predictions previously that would exceed random chance? Um, Or or does he just make vague prophecies that are so general they could fit almost anything? You know, I'd, I'd, I'd have to know more about the situation. There would be ways, including him just being a fraud, um, there would be ways of navigating the situation. But I'd have to have the details uh, to be able to do that. Wesley Corway says, I've read some people argue that God wouldn't bring back a soul enjoying the beatific vision into normal bodily life again, as that would take away the beatific vision from them, which would be unfitting. And then he says in part two, so if we could bring skeletons of saints back to life with nanotech and stem cell, this question is getting more interesting, with nanotech and stem cell reproducing all their cells with their DNA, would God refuse to cooperate or would he do it? So um, my take on that is, so let's deal with the first part of the question first, coming back from the beatific vision. Well, we do know that God sometimes uh, resuscitates people into normal life um, after they've died. And we know that happens even with righteous people because it happened with Lazarus. And so Lazarus, whatever his fate was, would have been a good fate in the afterlife. And yet God deemed it appropriate to send him back. So there can be situations where even if someone has had some um, really glorious experience in the afterlife, God says, no, it's I'm, I'm sending you back. And and that's ultimately what is appropriate. So I'd say your your friends claim that God wouldn't do it because it would be unfitting is mistaken. God does sometimes do this. And that's also borne out, or at least appears to sometimes do this. That's also borne out by um, by modern studies of near-death experiences. In near-death experiences, uh, people will sometimes report seeing this really glorious place in the afterlife, and they don't want to leave. And sometimes, in some near-death experiences, the person is told, you have a choice. You can either stay and enjoy paradise, or you can go back to earth and continue to do good on earth, like maybe take care of your family. And at least the people who who have come back report they made the choice to come back. Presumably, there would be other people who made the choice to stay and thus didn't come back. So that's what happens in some near-death experiences. But in other near-death experiences, the person goes, they see the beautiful place, they want to stay, and they're told, you're going back. And they say, no, I want to say, you're going back. And then they come back. And so 
people aren't always given a choice. Uh, sometimes they are just sent back because their purpose here on Earth is not yet fulfilled. And so they aren't given the option of stay. But what about the second part of the question? Let's say we've got some saint skeletons and we use nanotech and stem cell technology to build new flesh and skin and organs and ligaments. And we, we build them new bodies and we animate those bodies. Are they going to have, is God going to send the soul of the dead saint back? Probably not. That soul is with God in heaven. God could send it back, but that's probably not what's happening here. What's probably happening here, even if even if we're using uh, nanotech that makes cells that are genetically identical to those of the first of of the, of the dead saint. You know, we've got his hair follicles or something, and we we make sure these cells are genetically identical. All we're doing is creating a twin. It may be a twin that we've stuck the original skeleton into, but it's still a twin. And identical twins have different souls because they're different people. And so it would look to me if we're making a new body and, and wrapping it around this saint skeleton, that what we're doing is really creating a new person. We're creating a new body and we're incorporating bits of an old body into it. And well, that happens every time you have someone conceived, you know, they always have bits of their mother and father in them. That's how they get to have their own genetic code. So having bits of an older body in you doesn't mean that you're the same person. Um, it would it would look to me like uh, like we're just making a new body. And if it's a living new body, it's a new person. And if it's a new person, it has a new soul. So I would say we're recycling a skeleton and some genes, but it's fundamentally a new person. That's how I would tend to answer that one. Again, Anon, number one, says, will the final judgment be so final as to include any rational aliens in it, such that after we are judged, the whole universe enters the eternal age, or will there be multiple final judgments for aliens too? We don't know. It could be that the final judgment will apply to Earth and to or to the human race. You know, if let's say we get out to Mars or Jupiter or something by the time of the final judgment, well, we'll all, all it'll, deal, it'll deal with all humans. We can be confident of that. Whether it deals with any other races that may be out there, we don't know. God may have his own timetable for them. So that's a question we'll have to leave in his hands. I'm looking at, let's see. Oh, here's one I missed. Corey says, when you and your wife converted to Catholicism, was your family negative about it? How do I tell my anti-Catholic family that I'm considering Catholicism. Okay. Um, my wife and I, so my wife grew up Catholic. She also grew up in a flying saucer religion, but that's another story. She was raised Catholic when I met her and became, and there's, I guess you can kind of see it. There's a picture of her up there on the shelf, but um, I was planning on becoming a Protestant 
seminary professor and pastor, and I wasn't going to marry a, a Catholic woman. And so she decided to start describing herself as Anglican. And that was enough for me to, to marry her. But she then immediately went back to Catholicism. So I don't think that was really a, I don't think that was particularly sincere on her part. It wasn't a sincere intellectual conversion. It was something she did because she wanted to marry me. And so she, her family was already Catholic and therefore they didn't have any problem with, with her uh, resuming the practice of her Catholic faith. In my case, um, my family, so my family was not very religious. They were culturally Protestant, but not very religious. And this was, you know, the early 1990s when this was when I was becoming Catholic. And and they had been afraid for some time that I was going to do something crazy because I'd become an evangelical. And they had they had become concerned that I might do something crazy like a chain myself to an abortion clinic and go to jail or something like that. That's at least how it would have looked in their eyes. And and so when I think when they learned I was becoming Catholic, it was like, oh, phew, Catholics are respectable. They're not going to go do crazy evangelical things um, now. I, I don't that's the vibe I got from them. Um, I don't know that they actually thought that in in and in fact, actually, a lot of Catholics were the people chaining themselves to abortion clinics. Um, but um, I, I think my I think that some of the edge was taken off it by the fact that, OK, Catholics can be respectable and they can be not crazy people and, and so forth. But there was an even bigger factor that played a role, um, which was my wife was dying at the time. And, um, I, when I told my family that I was, that I was going to become Catholic, it was within that two month window when, between when my wife got sick and when she passed on and they were not going to add to my suffering and the challenge I was going through by, um, by making a stink about my decision to become Catholic. Um, so, so they left my immediate family, left me alone about that. They did not cause a problem. I did have more distant family members who would have taken a more negative attitude like my grandmother. Um, my, but in her case, I solved the problem by not telling her and letting, letting her learn organically. And she never brought it up to me. Um, I know she knew, I know she later found out that I was Catholic, but she she didn't she didn't bring it up to me she didn't want to fight about it um i would say in answering your question uh cory don't act precipitously um in in bringing up difficult subjects with your family wait until you know that you're going to become catholic and then think about who has a real need to know here you know um I would assume if your parents are still living, you would want them to know that you're a Catholic now. Um, and but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't, you know, if you're only thinking about it. You know, there's an argument for, well, why disturb them unnecessarily if they're if you think it will disturb them. Um, 
But once once you've made the decision, you know, it, it is appropriate to let certain people know and you can handle it in different ways. You uh, One thing I would do is I would say, look, I, I, I want you to know I, I love you and that's why I'm telling you this. And this is a sincere conviction on my part. I think I really need to be Catholic. And so that's what I'm going to do. And in I don't want to argue about it. If um, if you want to discuss things with me, I'm happy to discuss them in a friendly way. Um, but I don't I don't want this to I don't want this to just feed family fights. So uh, so I don't want to do that. And 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 then you can cut off discussions about it if it does start to cause family fights. Um, but. You also, if if they're interested in learning more and say, well, why do you want to do this? Well, you can treat it as an occasion for evangelization or at least clearing up um, objections that they have that uh, that can be cleared up. So I, I, I know it's um, it's a, it can be a sensitive thing, but I would tend to say, you know, go slow. And when it does come time affirm your love for them, affirm the fact that you don't want this to be a cause of, you know, fights and divisions in the family um, and treat it as an opportunity and a positive thing where you can share more of, of, uh, of God's truth and help, help resolve questions they have and difficulties they have and, um, and treat it as, a, as positively as possible. So those would be some general ideas about how to approach it. Joseph D'Amato says, um, Merry Christmas, Jimmy. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? Will there be a mysterious world? Will this be a mysterious world topic one day? Um, so I'm, I, I think I'm remembering who Satoshi Nakamoto is. Let's take a look and see if I'm right. Satoshi Nakamoto. Ah, okay. No, uh, Satoshi is not who I was thinking of. I was thinking of a um, of of a Shogun era uh, Catholic martyr in Japan. No, I do know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. He. It's this. It's the name. It's a pseudonym, but it's the name used by the person or persons who developed Bitcoin. And I have um, I have looked at doing um, cryptocurrency related episodes of Mysterious World before. I've done a little bit of research uh, along those lines, but I haven't had an episode like that come out. I will continue to look at them and we might, depending on what I can figure out about Satoshi Nakamoto and, and the nature of the mystery. My memory is that we may have a pretty good idea who he is, but I will, um, I will continue to look at that and we might have an episode on it. Corey says, are you planning on doing an episode on St. Faustina and the image of divine mercy and the shroud of Turin? Um, so at present, I don't have, I don't think I have St. Faustina and the Divine Mercy image on the list. The reason is because Mysterious World is a show about mysteries. 
And I don't know if there's enough of a mystery there. Um, it's not just a religious show. I, 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 that's, that's what Catholic Answers Live is. That's what Catholic Answers Focus is. Um, in order for something to qualify for Mysterious World, it has to involve a mystery. Could be a solved mystery. Could be one that's been answered, but it needs to be a mystery. And I suppose we could look at were Saint Faustina's revelations real? You know that could be a mystery. But there are so many um, revelation, you know, private revelation claims that I could do a I could do a podcast series on nothing but those. And then it wouldn't be Mysterious World. It would be the Let's Analyze Private Revelations podcast. So um, I, hypothetically, I could I could do St. Faustina and were her revelations real in the future. But it would probably be a while because I need to have a nice mix of other topics so we don't get bogged down in just one topic. On the Shroud of Turin, um, I have done preliminary research on the shroud and I've concluded that the issue is so complex that I don't have time to fully investigate it right now. And therefore I have taken the shroud of Turin off. It's still on the big list of, I mean, there's like 1800 unexplored topics on the big list and the shroud of Turin is one of them. But in terms of having a shroud of Turin episode anytime soon, I've backburnered that because it is just so enormously complex. Despite what you hear from both pro and anti shroud people, it is not a slam dunk on this one. It, 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 anyone who, who says, Oh, it's clearly real or, Oh, it's clearly fake. I don't think they have a an appreciation of the full range of data. I suspect that that if they are convinced it's just clearly real or if they're just convinced it's clearly non-miraculous, they haven't looked at a broad enough range of evidence. They've they've cherry unintentionally, presumably, because I presume they're in good faith. They've unintentionally focused on one set of evidence without looking at the other. So whichever way they go, I the the evidence that has to be considered in that case is so voluminous and so complex that I just don't have time right now to do thorough research on it. And I don't want to do a half-baked job. So I've decided to put that on the back of the stove so it won't be half baked if my mixed kitchen metaphors are working in sync. Uh, let's see. The Sebasic Zero says, um, if all the cardinals, bishops, and clergy knew a given pope wasn't the pope and wasn't even elected during the conclave, but for some reason they all just had to pretend this guy, the guy was the true pope, and he is baptized but not ordained, what would the doctrine of universal and peaceful acceptance imply then? Would the non-elected person become Pope because the laity truly think he is, 
or not as the clergy don't. And if the guy were never ordained, would God somehow supernaturally ordain him if the laity's acceptance made him pope? Okay. So um, this is clearly a speculative question. Um, and truthfully, there there is no doctrine that uh, is has been articulated to deal with this exact question. There are principles in doctrine, which I'll get to in a moment, but the church has not answered this question for us. Um, the not in any explicit way. Similarly, this question is speculative enough that we don't really have a lot of his, history of theology dealing with this question. Theology and doctrine are two different things. Theology is a matter of opinion, but whereas doctrine is a matter of church teaching. And theology, theologians have not typically looked at this kind of scenario. But the standard approach based on principles that um, that are part of doctrine and that have been discussed theologically would be to say, if he's not ordained as a bishop, he's not pope, period. So it doesn't matter if you've got a, a million bazillion people who think he's pope. If he's not a bishop, he is not the pope because one of the in order to be pope you have to be the bishop who is at the center of the catholic communion which means you these days you're the bishop of rome because that's where peter left his successors and so um so no bishop no pope that would be the standard and safe answer Uh, Callum S. says, are you aware of debates over minimal facts versus maximal data arguments for the existence of God? Where do you stand? Um, Normally, where I encounter minimal facts arguments is on the resurrection of Jesus. And you can use the resurrection of Jesus as a... um, as an argument for the existence of God, that's an, an approach that's sometimes known as evidential apologetics, which is distinguished from classical apologetics, where you would argue for the existence of God directly without using the resurrection as a way of arguing for it. Um, but um, I am am I have not studied current minimal facts arguments versus maximal data arguments for God's existence. The arguments that I tend to focus on for God's existence tend to be updated versions of classical arguments, uh, particularly the contingency argument. I think the contingency argument works. Um, Also, I I like the ontological argument, Um, but I, I, I have not studied at this point the minimal facts versus maximal data arguments uh i'd have to i'd have to read the literature and see how they're being presented cosmic planes says in buddhism there are legends of psychic powers called ithi or rithi uh that come from meditation techniques do you think that these monks in ancient times accidentally found psychic abilities and are you interested in looking up Ithi and Rithi as episode ideas? Well, I'm, sure, I'm happy to look them up. I'm aware of claims of, of psychic functioning 
in um, in Eastern religious contexts. Um, this last um, I'm taking people may know I'm taking some courses in parapsychology from the Ryan Education Center. And this last semester, I took one on religious perspectives on Psy and 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 that included reading um, uh, some selections of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I decided to read the entire Tibetan Book of the Dead just for background because I'd never gotten around to reading the whole thing. Um, and and so I'm aware of some. I've also taken a course in paranthropology, which is the anthropological study of parapsychological phenomena. And so I'm aware of I'm aware of these claims. Happy to happy to research things. Um, one of the things I would need to find in order to be able to just report more than just here's what people claim is incidents of psychic functioning that I have enough data about to be able to evaluate. Otherwise it just becomes, Oh yeah. So there are these Buddhist people who say this and that's what they think. Now let's move on to the next topic. So, you know, in order to have much meat in an episode like that, I would need to know more than just here's what the claims are. I would need to know here are some examples with enough data that they can be evaluated. But yeah, I'm happy to look at uh, reports of psychic functioning all over the world. In fact, I, you know, I would like to have more mysteries that are not based in America and Europe. I would like to have more Latin American mysteries. I would like to have more African mysteries. I would like to have more Asian mysteries. Um, the difficulty is finding good data that is in English um, because I don't speak the languages or at least more than a few words of the languages in a lot of these parts of the world. And so um, so I, I need to be able to process the data and present the data in English. Um, but if people have topics they'd like to recommend, email us at mysterious at SQPN and also include links to resources that you've seen that you think would be good for us to consider. Maria Smithers says, why would God create someone he knows is going to choose to go to hell? Okay, this one comes up fairly frequently, and I've written a piece about this. I won't go through all the arguments here because you can read them in more detail then I can go through here. But if you Google my name, Jimmy Aiken, and why would God create someone he knows he is going to go to hell, there will be a an article that comes up. It's at my personal website, jimmyaiken.com, and it will cover the different possibilities. So have fun reading. I'm going to have some more of this eggnog. It's like a liquid cinnamon bun. Mm. Really good liquid cinnamon bun. Okay. Tonya Palmer says, it is my understanding that the name Bethlehem means house of bread, but I'm curious why. Was this the home of a well-known bakery? Is there one currently in operation? Okay. Um, so, yeah, the, the name Bethlehem does mean house of bread. 
Beit in, in Hebrew means house, and Lahem means bread. It also means food. Um, food and bread were, you know, the same thing. If you ate, if so bread didn't just mean what we think of as bread. Bread is, you know, the staff of life in the in after the Neolithic period when agriculture was invented in the West, bread became the main thing you ate. Everything else was just something you ate with bread. So the word for bread, lahem, became the word the standard word for food. Same thing happens in Greek. In Greek, the word for bread is arton, but it also just means food. Um, in any event, uh, so it does mean that. And I don't know that we have an answer why. Uh, in we, we don't have a lot of literature. So Bethlehem is mentioned at least as early as the prophet Micah, which is like 800 BC. So, um, so it, the name is quite ancient and we don't have a lot of uh, Israelite literature from that period that's not in the Bible. And the Bible doesn't explain its name and we don't have other ancient Israelite literature that would explain where the name came from. I'm sure there were people baking bread in Bethlehem because people in Bethlehem needed to eat and bread was the main thing you ate. So, um, so I'm sure there were home bakeries. There was there a, um, was there a famous communal bakery? Maybe. Um, I don't know if we found it though, because Bethlehem has been continuously occupied. And so we haven't dug up, you can't really dig up the whole thing and, and, and do a a thorough archeological survey because people are living there and you can't kick them out of their houses and tear up their houses. Um, so I don't know if we have an answer to that question, but it's certainly possible that there was a, a famous bakery, uh, in Bethlehem and that that's where the name came from. Kathy Wood says, how, oops, it vanished. Now it's back. Let's see if I'm at the same place. I don't think I am. I think when it refreshed, it knocked me somewhere else. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, okay, I'm going to go all the way. So I don't know. We actually don't know which of these is the beginning, which end of this chat is the beginning and which is the end. Um, I think, well, here's one at the top. April Blake says, have you watched The Chosen yet? No, I haven't. I will probably sign off when The Chosen live stream starts. Sorry. Oh, have fun on The Chosen live stream. Um, yeah, I have not. I've heard good things about it, but I haven't watched it myself yet. Um, Corey says, does Catholic Answers Live have any relics in the studio? Catholic Answers Live does not have any relics in the studio. However, Catholic Answers does have relics in the chapel. Um, We have a chapel where Mass is said for the staff. And over the years, people have donated various first-class relics to us. And we do have those there. Um, Scott Davidson says, why do we not feel the ether? If it is true that the earth is in motion. 
Well, the standard scientific answer is because ether doesn't exist. Um, ether is a um, a concept that originated with the Greeks. Um, ether was originally believed to be an element that we don't have here on Earth because it is so lightweight. Um, the way Aristotelian physics worked, um, everything sought its natural place in the universe, which was based on its heaviness. And so since Earth is the heaviest element, all of the Earth in the universe collapsed into a ball. And that's what we're living on. And then since water is not as heavy as Earth, the water surrounded the Earth, and that's where the seas came from. And since air is not as heavy as water, the air surrounded the oceans, and that's where we get the atmosphere. And then fire is not as heavy as air because you can see it leaps upward. You know, it tries to move up when you have a lit match or a candle or something. And so then above the atmosphere, there's this realm of fire. And then there's there's this other realm we see up there with the stars. And some Greeks thought that the stars are also made of the standard four conventional elements. But a a very common opinion was, no, they're made of something else because they seem to just circle and do the same things eternally. They don't look corruptible. And so the idea was that they're made out of an additional fifth element known as ether. And that's where the concept of ether came from. But... <clears throat> After the discovery of modern um, chemical elements, you know, going back a few centuries when we started to, you know, piece together, oh, it's there are more than just four elements. There's a lot more than four elements. And we started to find them after chemical elements were discovered. Um, the concept of ether kind of got a new lease on life as an explanation for um, for how light travels in space, because originally, you know, people didn't weren't exactly sure what light was. In fact, there are there are great I'll, going back to the Greeks and further than the Greeks. People weren't even sure how vision worked. You know, today we're all familiar with, OK, light bounces off something or is emitted by something. It goes into your eye and it, it, it hits your retina at the back of your eye where it's translated into electrochemical signals that go back to the visual cortex in your brain and your brain processes the image. And we all we all know that's how vision works. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't know that. And they had a variety of theories about how vision works. One of my favorite theories is so the the version of how vision works that we're familiar with is a version that is known as an intromissive theory of vision an intromissive theory of vision says that that the image goes into your eye and that's how you get the image it enters or goes in it's intromissive like at the end of mass when the priest says ite missa est go in peace that's with the mission part so the light goes into the image goes into your eye that's how you see that's intromission but a major rival set of theories were known as the extromissive theories of vision and in the extromissive theories your eyes send out beams that scan the world and bring the image back to you and yes you need light the presence of light for these beams to work but 
you're you're sending out beams out of your eyes that that bring back the data and that maybe can influence other people if you give them the evil eye. And so I just think the intro missive, the extra missive theories of vision are really cool. But even after people, you know, optics start to develop and people start to figure out, okay, it's the light that brings us the image. Um, So the, some version of the intro missive theory of vision is correct. Um, How does light work? Well, Isaac Newton, um, you know, he's famous for proposing gravity, um, but he also did a lot of work on optics. And Isaac Newton thought that light is made out of tiny particles, which he and so he invented what's called the corpuscular theory of light, that light's made out of these little corpuscles, little particles, and they stream through empty space. And so there's no problem. If space is a vacuum between with how the light gets from the sun to the earth, it just is little corpuscles, little particles traveling from there to here. But Christian Huygens, what a pain in the butt for for um, for for uh, for Newton, or at least Newton really thought he was a pain in the butt. He didn't buy the corpuscular theory of light. He had the audacity to point to evidence that suggested light is a wave. And um, and so you got this, you know, science rivalry going between Newton and the corpuscular theory of light and um, Christian Huygens and the wave theory of light. And and one of the corpuscular arguments would be, okay, Mr. Wave Boy, if light is a wave. If it's not a particle, if light is a wave. It needs a medium to propagate. You know, you can't have a wave in a pond without a pond. You can't have a wave in an ocean without an ocean. You can't have a wave of molasses in a big container of molasses without a big container of molasses. So what is, Mr. Wave Boy, the medium that propagates the waves of light if light is a wave, answer me that. And the uh, the wave theorists then said, oh, well, have we got news for you? Going back to the ancient Greeks, there's this concept that space is made out of ether. So that's what we're going to call the medium. And we can even deduce certain properties about the ether. It has to be incredibly lightweight. It has to be, otherwise it would violate your, it would fall down and collect, collapse around the earth, Mr. Newton, with your newfangled gravity theory. Um, and it, it needs to be transparent so that, because we don't see it. And it needs to be um, stiff for reasons I won't go into, but it also needs to be flexible. And um, so they they had deduced these properties about what ether must be like. and and. Then in the mid 1800s, there were some scientists named Mickelson and Morley who said, "Ooh, we could test this. We could we could test whether or not the ether is real, because as the Earth goes around the sun, it would be moving through this ether and we could take measurements as at different times in the Earth's year that would detect the ether. 
And um, and so they did an experiment. It's it's one of the most famous experiments in the history of science. It's known as the Michelson-Morley experiment. And when they ran it, they found out no evidence of ether. And so by the uh, mid 20th century, you know, it took a while, but by the mid 20th century, the um, the the idea of ether had been superseded. So that would be the reason from a standard scientific perspective, that would be the reason why we don't feel the ether if it's true that the earth is in motion because there is no ether. So we're not bumping into it. At least there's no ether of the sort that was proposed prior to the 20th century. Now, if you wanted to find ether some other way so that it's closer to empty space time or space time that's just filled with, you know, the kind of buzz of subatomic particles that we're aware of on the quantum level. Well, that does exist and we don't feel it because it's largely empty with just a buzz of subatomic particles that are too small for us to feel. So that's why we don't feel that. Um, so I hope that helps you out. By the way, on the, uh, on the, on the corpuscle versus wave theory of light, yeah, in the 20th century, it, we got evidence that it's the answer is kind of sort of maybe both that depending on how you measure it, light either displays particle like properties or it displays wave like properties. And you can you can predict which properties it's going to display based on which test you run. So that's why both the particle theorists and the wave theorists had things they could point to in support of their theory. Um, because if you measure light one way, you will get a result that points in that direction. And this is known as the particle wave duality of light. Let's see. Um, Dennis Dobrovic says, why is there not more force against heresies in church? Well, um, so anytime someone asks a question of the form, why doesn't X happen more? And X is something that uh, depends on the exercise of the will of human beings. The ultimate answer is go ask those human beings. If you uh, if you want to know why bishops don't take more action against heresies in the church, well, go ask some bishops. You want to know why the Pope doesn't? Go ask the Pope. Um, I think that there are, in reality, multiple reasons. Um, it's only speculation on my part, since I'm not a bishop and I'm not the Pope. But um, I think that, number one, <clears throat> the, um, I, well, okay, so number one, a lot of things people think are heresy are not. Uh Heresy is a very, very um, carefully defined concept. In order for uh, someone to commit a heresy after baptism, that person must obstinately refuse to believe a dogma, not a church teaching, a dogma. A dogma is a subset of and of infallible teachings. The dogmas are 
a smaller set. They're all infallible, but they're within the larger set of infallible teachings. And specifically, dogmas are those that the church has infallibly defined to be divinely revealed. Not just that they're true, and they may be divinely revealed, but the, the church, in order for something to be a dogma, the church has to infallibly define the fact that it is not just true, but is divinely revealed. Okay, so that's what a dogma is. That's a pretty small subset of what the church actually teaches. You, you look at the catechism, it's got loads of teachings in it. Very few of them are dogmas um, on a percentage basis. Now, the dogmas tend to be the most important, but they they are comparatively small in number. So a lot of people are not committing heresy. They may have an idea you don't like. They may have an idea you don't believe. They may have an idea that's mistaken. They may even be denying an infallible teaching of the church. But it's not heresy unless they're denying a dogma. And so I think there's actually less heresy than a lot of people realize. People tend to overestimate the amount of heresy there is um, because they don't have a precise understanding of what constitutes heresy. Also, um, people tend to overestimate the amount of dogmas there are uh, because they tend to not have a precise understanding of exactly when infallibility is triggered. Um, but I think there's another reason. Um, another reason that you don't see more action being taken on heresy is um, a lot of it. A lot of people um, are innocently mistaken in their beliefs and trying to crack down on heresy as opposed to um, educating people in the truth. would cause problems. You know, when you're rooting out a problem, <clears throat> you can you don't want to get into a situation where you're causing worse problems than you're trying to prevent. You know, a classic example of this is one that actually occurred here in, in San Diego back in the 80s or 90s. There was a, a candidate running for office named Lucy Kalea, if I remember correctly, and she was pro-abortion. And the bishop of San Diego at the time publicly called her out for her support of abortion. And I, I I don't remember the details. It's been a while since I looked them up, but I think he, he either excommunicated her or told her she couldn't receive communion or something really public to that effect. And it caused a backlash sympathy vote for her that helped her get elected. And so he was trying to do the right thing, but there were unintended consequences. and. If you just started excommunicating people right and left for heresy, it would cause huge amounts of damage. You could alienate loads of people who you otherwise could help guide along the path and and help them get to Jesus, as opposed to just turning them all off in an instant and, and losing the ability to influence them to where they become cantankerous and resist whatever you say because you're such a meanie. Um, so I think that's another reason. And yet another reason is, as I said, a lot of these people are doing it in good conscience. They are not obstinately. Um, and that's a term of art in canon law. Um, 
I mean, the the real term is contumaciously. Um, and a lot of people have they just been badly catechized. They aren't contumacious. They aren't like willfully, um, you know, uh, hostily rejecting correction. They they just they just been badly catechized and they're set in their ways. And you couldn't prosecute them for heresy because you can't prove contumacy. And 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 it it will harm their uh, affiliation to the church if you if you crack down too hard, you know, as as the saying goes, the flock moves at the speed of its slowest member. And so if you're going to be a good shepherd, you need to um, you need to lead people in a way that's not destructive to them spiritually. Um, And then there's also a practical limitation, which is. In order for bishops to do something about it, it has to be reported to them. And a lot of people are just yahoos doing their thing, and it never gets reported to the bishop. You may be aware of it because you're you're hanging out on their Twitter feed or something, but the bishop never sees it. And and so there's there's just a bunch of reasons why you don't see more action in that regard. Should there be more? You can certainly argue that. Um, but, uh, but those are some of the reasons that I imagine bishops would cite, whether you approve of those reasons or not, I suspect that they would be cited if you were to ask the relevant people what their reasons are. Uh, let's see. Ramses Flores says, how would an ad orientum mass be said in the North Pole? What I would do, because so if you're at the North Pole, every direction is south. What I would do is pick, but you got different kinds of south. Because one south will point towards North America, another south will point towards Siberia, another south is going to point towards China, um, another south is going to point towards Britain. What I would do if I were saying mass at the geographical North Pole, which, or meaning the one with the, the, that's on the Earth's rotational axis, um, I, would, I would say mass facing the south that points towards Jerusalem. That's what I do. <clears throat> Sabrina Willis says, uh, hello and Merry Christmas. I have a question in regards to the names of angels that I found listed on a Wikipedia page, Angels in Theology. Many of these angels are watchers from the Book of Enoch. Yeah, no, that one. And are fallen angels. Yep. Um is there any real danger in using these names as character names in a fantasy story I'm writing? I find many of the names beautiful and thought that they would make great names for various people in my world. However, I wouldn't want to glorify potentially real demons, open myself up to their influence or call upon them in praying. Thanks. Okay. So names are sounds. Names do not have any intrinsic power. Um, They're just sounds. They vary from one language to another. Do not be scrupulous about this. Um, Now, be aware if you like, okay, so one of the, um, if memory serves, okay, this leader in the book of, in First Enoch, the leader of the rebel angels is Simyaza. I want to say he's also called Sariel or another one of the fallen angels is called Sariel. And Sariel as a name is fine. It would mean God is my commander or God is my prince. 
in Hebrew. Sar is the word for prince or commander. E makes it possessive, so my prince or my commander, and L is God, so Sariel is going to mean God is my prince or God is my commander. And there's nothing wrong with that name. It's a beautiful name. Um, So you could certainly use it, even if, now, the Book of Enoch is not in the canon, unless you're Ethiopian Orthodox. And so, um, so it's not considered a canonical book by the Catholic Church. The names of angels in non-canonical works are not guaranteed, or demons, are not guaranteed to correspond to angels and demons in reality. So we don't know if there is a demon. Let's, let's use Sariel as an example. We don't know if there's a demon named Sariel. If there is, that's only what he's called in Hebrew. And there's no reason other people can't be called that too, um, because the name has a perfectly fine meaning. And it and it even if you just interpreting it based on its Hebrew roots, it's perfectly fine. So I wouldn't be scrupulous about this. I wouldn't worry about it. But as a literary author, you should be aware that there will be people who know the history of these names. And some of your readers may say, ooh, this is a literary allusion to that evil angel. I wonder what that says about this character. And that could cause them to have a disrupted literary experience. You could even have, you could even have readers get all crypto on you. And it's like, Ooh, that author, Sabrina Willis, she, she must be a Satan worshiper. She names her characters after demons. And so, you know, just bear in mind that every action has costs. And those are ones that hypothetically could emerge, but I wouldn't be scrupulous about it. It's a matter of prudence in deciding what you want to do. Callum S. says, uh, will you address evidence for demons in a future episode? I'm aware of your previous episode on the subject, but would be interested in well-evidenced cases. So the answer is yes. Um, I I do plan to do additional episodes on demons and on angels. one of the things I'm actively researching or trying to find, and don't, unless you've done a lot of research, do not send me links on this because I, I don't want to get deluged by people saying, oh, father so-and-so told this story, you know, or said this happened to him. I'm, I'm, I would like to do in fact i was i was doing some looking today i would like to find a well researched case of exorcism that is well documented and that looks like it really was a demon i would i would like to find one that fits that and i have pretty high standards um you know, when it comes to that, I do not believe something just because someone claims it. And you know that's true of anybody. If you listen to Mysterious World, you know that I don't automatically take anybody's claims for granted. And I test them. And, I, and thus far, I have not found a case like that. Um, I am aware of some cases. In fact, I've got a whole book about the the case that was the basis for the exorcist. I mean, I have original source documents on that case, but there's some evidence it wasn't actually deep, that it was something else. It was paranormal, but there's evidence that the exorcist case may have been something other than a demon. 
Um, I'm aware of other cases that are essentially dibbucks, which is where a ghost possesses somebody. And we will have a future episode on dibbucks. Um, but I'm I'm looking for a well documented case of exorcism that has strong evidence it was actually a demon. I'm sure they're out there. I just haven't found a good source because the sources I found tend to be skimpy. They don't have the amount of documentation I need um, or they're by people whose judgment I don't trust, like Father Gabriel Amorth. Um, but I, I'm look. I, I do plan on having such episodes in the future, and I am actively. I even, even today, I was actively trying to find a case like that that I can research. So it is on the active list for uh, for episodes to do. But please do not send me links of Father So and So and his and his exorcism stories because that's not what I need. Uh, let's see. Joe S. Question. For the Mysterious World Show, have you considered the mystery of the Holy House of Loretto? Uh, thank you and keep up the good work. I have considered it and we may do it in the future. Um, I don't know if um, I don't know if. There's enough of a mystery to build a whole show around it. So for people who may not be aware. The Holy House of Loretto is a structure in Loretto, Italy, that reportedly was transported from the Holy Land to Italy by angels. And it's it was like the whole house of the Holy Family, which is why it's called the Holy House or the House of Mary. And um, and it is. uh and and so there's this story that it was transported like during the crusades to protect it from desecration or destruction by muslim forces or something like that angels brought it to italy well that's the legend and it appears that the legend is based in truth not that it was literal bodiless non-human angels that brought the holy house to italy but that it was human angels, specifically members of the Angeli family. There was a family named Angeli, and it appears they were the ones who brought the house to Italy. And um, and from that, people would say, oh, yeah, the angels brought this house. The Angeli brought this house. And, and that led to the legend of non-human angels bringing it. So there is a legend there, and that's a mystery, but I don't know if it's enough of a mystery to do a full show about. But, you know, I'll see. Do I play video games? Okay, I already answered that one, Saul. Unfortunately, I don't. Um, Declan McGrath says, what do you make of Father Rossetti's claim that demons can communicate directly by using technology? He claims to routinely get texts from them, and he thereafter texts back with a prayer. Okay, so in order for demons to be able to text, they would have to be able to um, uh, manipulate electrons 
in some way. And that would be classified as a, because electron, the movement of electrons is what drives electronics. So if someone is texting you electronically, they're moving electrons that, you know, get turned into radio waves that get to your phone and get turned back into um, readable signals on your screen. Um, And they're using a phone to manipulate, if it's a human texting you, they're using a phone or some other electronic device to manipulate electrons. Demons not having bodies and not having phones would uh, have to do all that mentally. So it would be what's known as psychokinesis or PK. And we have evidence from scripture that angelic beings have psychokinesis. They can manipulate matter, uh, like when uh, for example, um, you know, an angel sends a plague. Well, okay, that's microorganisms. So they're clearly manipulating the microorganisms to cause the plague or other things. Um, so I, I don't, I can't rule it out that demons would be able to send you a text. On the other hand, it's not classic demon behavior to send you a text. And so I would say, what are the odds this is actually a demon that's texting you as opposed to a person? I mean, I would think, you know, someone could be getting lots as a human person. Someone could be getting their jollies by pretending to be a demon and say, hey, let's be a demon. Let's pretend to be a demon and text that priest or text that exorcist and 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 creep him out. Won't that be fun? Well, I, I think I can imagine lots of people who are, you know, immature jerks who want to do stuff like that just to mess with you. Um, so I, I would, or I could imagine people with mental illness, maybe even thinking that they are speaking for a demon and texting you. So I, I can't rule out that demons would text to this guy, but, um, but I would want to say, okay, so what's the evidence that this is actually a demon and not someone who's delusional or not someone who is pretending to be a demon, who's hoaxing being a demon just to just to mess with you and get their jollies. Um, I would think that the odds of a natural explanation rather than a supernatural explanation would be the higher probability in this case. But it's always up to the evidence and I would want to see the evidence. Um, also, and I don't know Father Rossetti, so I, I don't know anything about him. I want to make that clear. But if someone reports that they are getting messages through their phone from demons, that could, I'm not at all saying is, that could be a symptom of paranoid schizophrenia. And so, um, so you know, when people claim, make extraordinary claims about someone communicating with them through the television or the radio or their phone or something like that, um, that's something that has to be considered. And if uh, Father Rossetti, whoever he is, is able to just say, oh, no, here are the texts, I'll show you. Well, then, you know, that's evidence that that's not what's responsible in this case, in which case it's I would say it's probably either a delusional person who's texting you or a hoaxer who's texting you. But 
there would be ways of of establishing whether it's actually a demon, but that would require further investigation. Ryan B. says, are statues of the resurrected Jesus allowed in the sanctuary? Our church has the crucified Jesus and a resurrected Jesus also on a cross on the wall in the sanctuary. So what uh, the current edition of the general instruction of the Roman Missal requires is that on or near the cross, uh, the, the altar, there be a figure of the cross, there be a cross with the figure of Christ crucified. So, um, so as long as there in the on or near the altar, and the sanctuary would be near the altar, there is a cross and it has Christ crucified on it, that element of the law is complied with. There are not prohibitions that I'm aware of um, on having additional figures of Jesus, including resurrected Jesuses, including resurrected Jesuses on crosses. As long as you got one with him crucified on or near the altar, you're good. If you have additional crosses with him or additional images of Jesus in, in resurrected form, that is okay, so far as I'm aware. And I have, you know, looked at this issue in rather a lot of detail. I wrote a whole big, thick book on it. Uh, let's see. Ryan B. says, what about depictions of Jesus on the cross with hands above his head nailed? So it's going to be like this. Um, I saw this used at a Catholic church once. Okay, this is a please don't eat the daisy situation. This is something the legislator did not envision and has not addressed. Um, you do sometimes see depictions of Jesus like that in Jehovah's Witness art. Um, it is not the traditional Christian way of depicting Jesus. We have cruciform images with his arms spread um, going way back in Christian history to like the second century or third century at the latest. Um, we even have what look like crosses, meaning, you know, cross marks. Uh, they've been found in uh, the cities of Herculaneum and Pompeii in Italy, which were both covered up by Mount Vesuvius when it blew in AD 79. And based on the crosses of um, of Vesuvius and Pompeii, they're like carved into streets and, and businesses and things, and they're not found elsewhere in pre-Christian times. And so there is, um, uh, there's, I've got a whole book about the possibility, I think it's even called The Crosses of Pompeii or The Crosses of Herculaneum, um, that proposes there was an early Christian community in these two cities prior to the volcano going in AD 79. Uh, and that would be first century evidence of, of the Christian use of a cross with a cross beam, not just a staff. Now, the Greek word stauros, which is the word that's used in the Gospels for what Jesus was crucified on, it, it could refer to just a stake that someone could hypothetically be nailed to with their hands above their heads. But it's also consistent with a cross. And based on other evidence, we have good evidence that Jesus was actually crucified. Um, the legislator, in thinking about what kinds of images of Jesus are people going to make, they're thinking the, they're thinking the 
crucified ones. They're not thinking the torture stake images. So whether now there's no prohibition on depicting Jesus that way. So it's 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 not disallowed whether it would fulfill the requirements of having an image of Christ crucified would be up for the legislator to clarify. Um, so until we would get such a ruling from Rome, I couldn't really give you a definitive ruling on that. It seems to me to be a legal gray zone. Ashley Dixon says, I am reading Broken, I am reading Broken Gods with an apostrophe S, by Gregory Popcock. I think that may be Popcheck. In it, he claims we humans are broken gods. Okay. Uh, If we are broken gods, then does that mean that Adam and Eve were literally gods but made low? Um, Okay, so this is going to be this is going to be a semantic issue. It's going to it's going to depend on how you define the term God. If you define the term God, to mean uncreated infinite being, then humans are not gods, never have been, never will be. We're finite and created, and if you're finite and created, you can't become infinite and uncreated. Also, if you're infinite and uncreated, you cannot become finite and created. You can take on a finite created nature, you can incarnate, but you can't become no longer infinite and uncreated. Um, so, so that's obviously not what the author of this book was maintaining. Is the term God used in other ways? Sure. Superhuman being. Um, that's, what, that's what the gods of most nations were conceived of as being. They were superior to human beings. They had more power, more knowledge, more um, durability than humans. They were often immortal, not always, but often immortal. Um, And so they were superior to humans in various ways, but they weren't infinite and uncreated. Well, were, um, are we going to be superior to the way we are now in the future, in the resurrection? Yeah, we are. We're going to have more knowledge. We're going to have more power. We're going to be mortal. It's all good. All that great stuff. Um, so, uh, and in fact, there is an element in Christian history that plays on this that talks about humans being divinized or experiencing theosis and thus becoming gods with little g, little g gods. Um, and, and, Can you conceive of our pre-fall first parents that way? Well, maybe, Um, you know, Scripture doesn't really depict them that way. Um, In Scripture, I mean, if, if, if you go back to Scripture, you peel off the layers of theology and say, what does Scripture actually depict Adam and Eve being like? Like little children. They don't realize they're naked. They're running around naked. Um, they aren't, they aren't real bright. They don't yet have the knowledge of good and evil, um, which is probably a merism. A merism is a, or it's probably a pars pro toto. Um, pars pro toto means, um, uh, whole from the parts. And so you name two things like night and day that refers to the entire day or body and soul that refers to the entire person. 
Good and evil probably means knowledge of everything, knowledge of stuff in general, knowledge of both the good and the evil, knowledge of everything. That's probably what that means. And so they're they're depicted as not having a lot of knowledge and not knowing and caring that they're naked and um, and they need to eat. And they aren't yet depicted as being immortal because they need to, you know, God says, I'm going to kick him out lest man reaches out his hand and takes of the of the tree of life and eats and lives forever. And and the way the the. Um, unless I'm mistaken, the way the verb um, aspect works in Hebrew, this is it, it's consistent with not just you eat it once and then you become immortal. You got to like keep eating from it and it'll keep you alive. And um, and so he's not portrayed as being immortal. Now he's he so he's he's actually pretty limited. And yet. In theology, there has been an enormous amount of speculation that Adam and Eve must have had superpowers. That they could teleport and and you know were invulnerable and had all kinds of amazing abilities um and and so and that they were immortal until they until they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um okay maybe but you know that's theological speculation and it's theological speculation that is not grounded in scripture because scripture presents Adam and Eve as being in a limited condition where they were not immortal. They could have been immortal if they ate and continued to eat from the tree of the of the tree of life, but they weren't yet. And they, they lacked knowledge. They lacked sensibilities that grown up adults have, like I need to wear clothing. Um, and they're presented as being very childlike. So um, could Adam and Eve have been gods in this little G sense? Well, sure, they, they could have. And according to a lot of traditional theological speculation, that would be a fair description of them if they've got superpowers. Um, but on the other hand, that's not that's a theological portrait of them. It's not actually a scriptural portrait of them. And so if you if you look just in terms of scripture, um, it doesn't portray them that way. So it depends on which source you're you're looking at. Let's have another. Let's hydrate a little more. Hmm. Okay, been going for almost two hours, but I'm still doing okay. I wonder how many people are watching. Looks like. 230 people are watching if I'm reading this correctly. That's awesome. Um, also, even though it interferes with talking a little bit, I'm going to smoke my pipe some. Um, okay. Looking for new questions. Okay, here's one that doesn't have a cue, but 
Sean Matthew says, when the magisterium non-definitively binds something on earth, is it bound in heaven as well? Or is that only for definitive teachings? So the, um, the original application of in Matthew 16 of the power of binding and loosing is not doctrinal. Um, it is uh, in term, it's, it's actually legal. The power of binding and loosing in a first century Jewish context referred to the ability to make binding legal decisions. Um, this is evident, for example, from the writings of Josephus where he at one point talks about how the Pharisees in a prior age had had the power of binding and loosing because of the fact that Queen Alexandra was a big fan of theirs. So she had the authority and they could exercise that authority through her by using their influence over the queen. And so this had, they could like excommunicate someone or banish someone. They could make authoritative rulings that people would have to go along with. And so the, um, the power of binding and loosing as, as a phrase primarily did not refer, it didn't really refer to doctrine. I mean, it, it intersected with doctrine because these were legal rulings, which were bound up in matters of doctrine, like God said this in the Torah. Um, but this was a primarily a legislative and judicial power rather than a doctrinal power. But it does interact with doctrine. And so there is a doctrinal dimension to the ability to bind and loose. And, um, and going with that, the Holy Spirit guides the church in its mission overall. Um, so it's not like there's a part of the church's mission where the Holy Spirit says, ah, you're on your own guys. The Holy Spirit is going to guide the church in the, the, the fancy word is in the integral exercise of its mission. This just means in the complete exercise of its mission. So when the church issues a non-definitive teaching, meaning it's not an infallible teaching, the Holy Spirit is presumed to still be guiding the church. And thus, the teaching is still presumed to be bound in heaven. But because the, uh, this is non-definitive, there's not a guarantee that the, that the magisterium has got it absolutely right. And so there can be human elements which can include mistakes in non-definitive teachings. And so um, it is possible for the church to issue a non-definitive teaching, a non-infallible teaching, and make a mistake. And in that case, it's not actually bound in heaven. But the burden of proof is on you if you want to show that the teaching is mistaken, because we know the church does guide, the Holy Spirit does guide the church in the overall exercise of its mission. And, and the, the presumption is that it guided, the Holy Spirit guided the church here. And if you want to say that the Holy Spirit didn't, the burden of proof is on you. Okay. Daniel C. says, what, what's your favorite X-Files episode or episodes? Okay. Well, there's a variety of them, and I haven't really thought about the question, but um, I know what it's not. 
It is not the first season episode space. I hate that episode. It is, um, it is an episode that involves the face on Mars and it, it Scully, Mulder and Scully go to NASA and it's early. It's a first season episode. So the writing is not good yet. Um, but Mulder, it, it Mulder just dumps exposition about space onto Scully. And so he's talking to her like she's an idiot who knows nothing about space. Not only is this character a scientist, she wrote her master's thesis on Einstein's twin paradox, a new interpretation that's established in the pilot of the series. So she knows a lot about space. Don't science explain to her Mulder. She knows more about it than you do. So I don't like that episode. Okay. What do I like? I really love the comedy episodes. Um, I mean, I like other ones too. I like some of the horror ones. Um, and I like the series overall, but I love some of the comedy episodes. One of my favorites, it has to be triangle. Um, in triangle, uh, Mulder goes to the Bermuda Triangle and gets caught up in a shipwreck and a time slip. He, he ends up back in nineteen in the night in like nineteen thirty nine, um, and Nazis have taken over the ship, and he meets a time warped version of Scully on the ship, and that's actually their first kiss. He kisses the time warped version of Scully. Meanwhile, Scully is in modern day, and she and the lone gunman are trying to rescue Mulder who has apparently been shipwrecked in the Bermuda Triangle. And this is, it, it, the episode is is played significantly for comedy. Um, it involves a lot of mind warpy stuff where you're encountering like 1939 Nazi versions of Skinner and the cigarette smoking man and a 1939 version of Scully as an American OSS agent protecting a scientist who knows how to make a bomb. And um, and it's a lot of fun and it's shot in at least the bulk of the episode is shot in a way that it's made to look like each act is a continuous take like in the movie Rope. Now, really, there are some cuts, but it's made to look as if for 12 minutes, it's all one take. And we're just following people with the camera. And and it, it, there are just some great things in that episode. I love Triangle. Triangle is wonderful. Um, also quite good is the two-parter that they do with... Um, it's a two-parter on Area 51. It's another late season episode after the comedy episodes developed. But it's... Uh, it's, it's uh, um, it stars Michael McKean, if I'm recalling correctly, as an as a Area 51 agent, and he and Mulder do a body swap. So Mulder is living the Area 51 agent's life, and the Area 51 agent is living Mulder's life. And that's that one's a lot of fun. Also fun is what is what is it called? Um I want to say small potatoes, but I I don't think that's the title. Um it's about a guy who has the ability to change shape. 
except for the fact he's got a tail. He was born with a tail and he had the tail surgically removed, but he was born with it. And and then all these women in town start giving birth to babies with tails. And you know what's been happening. He's been using his shape-changing ability to impersonate their husbands or other people they are in love with, including Luke Skywalker. <laughs> and 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 it's and and it's and it's it's played for laughs. Also, another good one is um oh and I I'm not requiring I'm not remembering the name of this one, but it's the one where um it's it's based around a carnival and um and you have all these carnival freaks and um and using the, the term as a term of art in a carnival um you uh but you have all these you know human anomalies and it subverts expectations because you're expecting the villain to be one of these human anomalies and no they're just ordinary people they're fine they they may be anomalous but they're fine and um and and Mulder is at, like because David Duchovny is has a, had a reputation I guess for like being a super good looking actor and women can confirm that I don't know um he he's presented as kind of like the anti-freak um, he's like the classic Adonis figure and, and, and so you have this interesting tension going on there. Also really good episode, Jose Chung's from outer space. That's, that's in my mind, that is up there with triangle. Um, Jose Chung's from outer space is a, um, is an episode about a writer He's played by Charles Nelson Riley. The writer is named Jose Chung, and he's writing a nonfiction science fiction novel. Basically, he's investigating a UFO case. And so he comes to Mulder and Scully and wants to interview them about their experiences in this UFO case. And he's going to write a nonfiction book about it. And so we see this um, UFO case from multiple witness perspectives and it's hilarious. Um, So Jose Chung's from outer space is really good. They also did on the sister show millennium. They brought Jose, Jose Chung back for another episode on millennium where he it's, it deals with Nostradamus and um, it also starts out with a um a montage that's a spoof of Scientology where um they he's talking about uh, in the montage Charles Nelson Riley is talking about this imaginary character who's clearly a cipher for L Ron Hubbard the founder of Scientology only they're calling him Juggernaut Onan Gupta and he founded a religion called Selfosophy and Selfosophy is just a send up of Scientology. And it's really funny. And he explains how in 1986, um, Juggernaut Onan Gupta left this earth to continue his selfological studies in another dimension, which is to say he died of prostate cancer. Um, they also, as part of that, they use a clip from the night, uh, part of the um, montage, they use a clip from the 1970s children's Saturday morning TV show, Lidsville, 
which had Charles Nelson Riley as the villain. He played Hoodoo the Magician in Lidsville, which is a, a live action show starring Butch Patrick from the Munsters. And, um, and I'm blanking on her name uh, uh, as Weenie the Genie. Who she also played Witchy Poo on HR Puff and stuff, but it's about a town of living hats, and which is why it's called Lidsville. You know, your hat is your lid, and and because Charles Nelson Riley was in that, they used a clip of him as Hoodoo the Magician in the opening montage about Selfosophy, which was hilarious for me to see because I watched Lidsville as a kid, and here it is again. Also, another really good episode. It's also a comedy episode. Uh, Bad Blood, where um, Mulder and Scully Scully go to a town in Texas to investigate vampirism. And there is a vampire community in this town in Texas, and they've stumbled into the middle of it and don't realize it at first. And it's also played for comedy. It's another one where you get, it's another kind of Rashomon one where you get the same story told from multiple perspectives. So you get to see Mulder's version of how it all happened. And then you get to see Scully's version of how it all happened. And the bad blood is between the two of them. You can see how they're both slanting their story to make the other one look bad. And it's really funny. So those are some of my favorite X-Files episodes. And I think I'm getting towards the beginning of the of the chat. So I'll go to the other end and see if we have had more questions come in. Yeah, I'm not seeing any more cues. So I'll go to the other end. Um, oh, it looks like I well, I don't think I can refresh without without possibly ending the stream. And I definitely don't want to do that. So it looks like I've scrolled through basically the whole thing. Oh, here is a new here is a new question I don't think I've seen. Uh, Nim the Robot says, I'm a candidate in RCA right now. Good for you. Do you think sufficiently advanced AI will be capable of believing in God and becoming Catholic? So I think sufficiently advanced AI will be capable of simulating belief in God. So if you ask it... Um, do you believe in God? It will say yes. And if you say, how would you prove the existence of God? It will give you a reasonable argument. And if you say, how would you answer this objection? It will give you a reasonable answer. Um, so I, I think that it will function in a way that passes the religious Turing test. And yet I don't think that it's actually going to believe in God because I don't think it actually believes anything. Artificial intelligence does not have beliefs. It only manipulates symbols and it will manipulate symbols in a way that's very convincing and mimics the way a human does, but I don't think it will actually believe. And it doesn't also, it's, it's not alive. So it doesn't have a soul and therefore it doesn't need redemption and is not capable of being baptized. Someone says I skipped about 50 questions. If so, I apologize for that. You're welcome to repaste your question. Um, Declan Sutherland says, hi, Jimmy. God bless. Does Catholicism have any teaching on the specific expressions of Trinitarian theology? For example, monarchial versus social Trinitarianism. Um, 
Well, <clears throat> there, what the church's teaching does is set boundaries um, to protect people from error. So if you, if you cross one of the lines into uh, a forbidden articulation, you've got a problem. But within those, the church leaves room for the mystery and for different articulations of the mystery. So you're going to need to say exactly, in order to get an up or down ruling, you're going to need to say, well, what do you mean? by monarchialism and what do you mean by social trinitarianism you're going to need a very precise definite statement in order to be able to evaluate it because otherwise there are you know things that you can say that will end up being permitted as within the realm of speculation they may be incomplete or partial or inadequate expressions of truth but they're not flat out false on the other hand, there are things about the Godhead that are flat out false, and um, and those are what the church has prohibited. But within those boundaries, there's room for different articulations, and I, I would need the terms of a particular position spelled out in detail to be able to offer an evaluation of it, because different people use the terminology differently. Someone might say, oh, I'm a social Trinitarian and mean something completely different by that than what someone else who believes in social Trinitarianism would mean. Kyle Whittington says, does smoking a pipe indoors damage your books at all? Um, only if you use the lighter to set your books on fire. Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, books are, I mean, they're, they're, you may get a little residual aroma of, of the pipe tobacco, you know, associated with the book, but that's going to be it. Um, books are made out of pages of paper. And as you can see them sitting on the shelves, they spend most of their life closed. So even if I'm smoking a pipe in here, there's no way for the, for the aroma to get between the pages when the book is closed and, and do any damage. It, it, you know, you might get a little bit of uh, smoke particles on the outside of the book that gives you a little bit of the aroma, but that's going to be it. It looks like here are some questions I haven't seen yet. Um, Daniel says, hey, Jimmy, what is your take on the Eye of the Sahara in northern Mauritania as a possible site of the lost city of Atlantis? Well, I'm aware of people who claim that, but um, it's it. I don't think that has a high likelihood of being correct. I do plan on doing a future episode on Atlantis, um, but I don't think I don't think the Eye of Bahara theory is particularly plausible, at least based on the current state of my research, because it's not an island and it's not in the right location for what Plato says about the island of Atlantis. He says it was beyond the Pillars of Hercules. Now, the Pillars of Hercules is basically where Gibraltar is now. It's at the mouth of the Mediterranean Ocean leading out into the Atlantic. So that's why it's, that's why we call the Atlantic Ocean the Atlantic Ocean. It's a, so, you know, in Atlantis, that's where Atlantis was. And, um, and so, uh, or at least that's related. The names are related. 
Um, and the eye of the Sahara is not an island. It's part of a continent and it's not beyond the pillars of Hercules. So it's in the wrong place. The thing that it has in similar is, well, okay, this is a geological formation that has a circular concentric circular design. And that's about its only point of similarity with Atlantis as far as I am aware, but I'm open to doing more research. Need to hydrate a little bit. <clears throat> Horizon says, Jimmy, do you have any thoughts on why so many baptized Catholics have fallen away from the faith? I know many such people. Thanks for doing this. Um, well, again, any question that has the form, why does X happen so much or why doesn't it happen so much is going to have when and the answer depends on the free will of individuals. You got to ask them. But what I would say is um, a lot of people have been really poorly catechized and there are and it's part of a broader social trend. Um, the it's not just Catholics who have been falling away from their faith. There has been a general decline of faith in the West that applies uh, to religions in general. And there are a variety of factors for that. Um, a variety of factors responsible for that, including citification um, and the and increased social mobility that disconnects people from their roots and um, the takeover of academia and the media by ideologies that are hostile to the Christian faith and, um, you know, uh, bunches of other things. Uh, but I think that there's not a single cause. I think it's a multiplicity of causes that are part of a broader social movement. Um, and uh, like any social movement, there are going to be ebbs and flows of that. Uh, there'll be periods in which it's worse, periods in which it's better. Um, but our responsibility is not to worry too much about, I mean, we do have concern for our fellow human beings, but we don't, we shouldn't be distressed by this. We should focus on our own service of God and helping those that we can, including especially our loved ones, have a relationship with God and, uh, and, and pursue him. Winter North says, Jimmy, what is your favorite mystery? Any mysteries keep you up at night? Um, so I don't really have a favorite mystery. I, I frequently am very interested in the mystery I'm writing about at the moment. Um, and that changes, uh, you know, constantly. <laughs> um, I, uh, I currently, I have, um, and uh, at the top of this live stream, I told you what's coming up in January and February. So that's eight episodes. But in addition to that, I have another 15 completely written and actually another 16 completely written. I'm not going to tell you what they all are because it would take too long. Um, but I between that and like the fifth Friday weird questions and the patrons question shows, I actually have the show completely written uh, through through mid-July, which is a big relief to me because in the old days, I was struggling to get scripts written in time to record. And a while back, I said, I want to have a reserve 
of pre-written scripts so that I am not having to struggle at the last minute to find something. And um, so that I also have flexibility in terms of scheduling things. So if I have, you know, a number of episodes pre-written but not yet scheduled, I can provide you, the listener, with a greater array of topics since we're not limited to whatever I'm writing about at the moment. I can say, oh, we haven't had a UFO story in a while. Let's pull one of those out of the reserve. Or, oh, we haven't had a supernatural mystery in a while. Let's pull a religious one out of the reserve. And I can provide a, a better mix that way. And so I've over the last couple of years, I've been you know building up this reserve and especially like at holiday time, like right now during the Christmas holidays, I plan to write as many scripts as I can. Um, it, if I'm, if, if I'm performing efficiently, it takes me something like two days to write a script, one day to do the research, one day to do the writing. And so I'm hoping I'll be able to bang out several more over the Christmas holidays, but I've, I, what, what I'm most interested in at the moment or what I'm most interested in, what tends to be my favorite is often the thing I'm researching and writing at the moment. That's not always true, but frequently it is. Are there any that keep me up at night? No, I actually sleep pretty well. Um, these days, uh, I used to have middle of the night insomnia where I'd wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to get back to sleep, um, for hours. But, uh, I seem to have gotten that problem solved through various means. And so, um, so actually I sleep pretty good these days. Um, I, I do wake up briefly during the night, but then I go right back to sleep. So that's actually pretty cool. It's nice to not have the have to deal with the insomnia I've had ever since I was a little kid. Uh, let's see. Nancy Venegas, will you ever do an episode about chiropractors? It's possible. I certainly have thought about it. Chiropractors are on the list. Um, the. Um, and and that's one where I would tend to have a kind of mixed um, uh, conclusion in all likelihood. I mean, I have to do more research, but my impression is that a lot of chiropractic theory has no scientific basis. And yet, I mean, like, you know, they talk about subluxations and things like that. There just doesn't seem to be any scientific basis for that. And yet, Chiropractic techniques can really help you uh, physically. I have, uh, I, a number of years ago, I, I sustained some back injury and nothing was fixing it. You know, none of the over the counter things were helping. And I went to a, uh, I went to a, a conventional medical doctor and he prescribed anti inflammatories. They did nothing, they did not help at all. Went to a chiropractor, started getting relief immediately. So I think that chiropractic medicine is um, is actually therapeutic, but I don't think that the basis of its therapeutic value is well understood by a lot of conventional chiropractors. Uh, practitioners of the Palmer School of Chiropractic Medicine in particular have this weird theory about why it works that is not scientifically well grounded. But it does work, at least for things like relieving back pain and neck pain and stuff like that. So, yeah, chiropractors are uh, are on the list. 
Matthew Vanacore says, what brought you to Catholicism as the one true church? So I won't go through all that in detail because I've written about it. Um, my conversion story is uh, called A Triumph and a Tragedy. And it is available on my website, jimmyaken.com. Uh, if you go to, let me actually talk you through how you get there. Um, cause it, you know, it's not on the front page, but it is on the website. So if you go to jimmyaken.com and you click under get started, there will be a, a, uh, a page called popular posts. And I'm pretty sure, let's see, do I have, I do not. Okay, so let me tell you, my conversion story is not on the popular posts page. Um, it is instead in the library. So what you want to do is when you get to jimmyaken.com, you go to library and then articles. And under articles, uh, you will find uh, my conversion story. Let's see what it's called in terms of the, fu- in terms of the link name. Yeah, it is called My Conversion Story. It's under the heading Being and Becoming Catholic. So uh, it's there. I wonder if I can send a link to it in the chat right now. Let's find out. So I haven't tried to send anything. I should be able to. Here is a link. I'm putting it in the chat. And I just sent a link to my conversion story where I go through the reasons that I became Catholic. And it was an intellectual conversion. Um. Chris says, have you ever investigated the claim of some Ethiopian Christians that the Jews took the Ark of the Covenant there, meaning to Ethiopia? Um, I have done research on that. I do plan to have an Ark of the Covenant episode in the future. And um, at least according to my current read of the evidence, what they have in Ethiopia, I think many Ethiopians, many Ethiopians clearly sincerely believe that they have the Ark at a church at Aksum in Ethiopia. Um, and I think that applies to the guardians of the, uh, of, of the object as well. I think they sincerely believe it's the Ark of the Covenant. I don't think it is. I think instead it's a replica of the Ark of the Covenant that over the course of time has been mistaken for the genuine article. So it's I would say what they have is a rep appears to be a replica of the Ark that is a genuine religious devotional object for them. And God honors the devotion that they show um, by reverencing this object. So I don't think it's the historical Ark of the Covenant, but I think that it that that they are sincere in their devotion and that there is an object there uh, that looks a lot like the original Ark. Dan R. says, Merry Christmas, Jimmy. I love your podcast and fall asleep to it every night. Really, you must re-listen to it a lot. Um, Good. I'm glad you enjoy it. Uh, I managed to spend the last week trying to find out your conclusion to the Loch Ness Monster, but kept conking out. Yeah, that happens to me, too. Um, I I think that, uh, to give you a brief summary, I think that uh, it's possible that there are are anomalous animals in Loch Ness, like maybe very large eels, but uh, that's only a possibility. I do not think there's anything like a plesiosaur living there for reasons I explained in part two of the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, Let's see. 
St. Charbel Miracle Worker says, what do you think of Milo Yiannopoulos' contention that Mary Poppins was subversive? The nanny interfered in natural family order. Mom was lazy, selfish, and father was the only sane one. Um, I haven't seen his articulate. I know I know a little bit who Milo Yiannopoulos is. I haven't seen his uh, discussion of that subject, so I can't really evaluate his case. It's also been decades, I mean, literally decades since I've seen Mary Poppins. Um, I I did see it as a kid at least at least once, maybe I think a few times. Uh, you know, maybe two or three, because uh, we didn't have video cassette recorders when I was growing up. Those are a later invention. You had to go to the movies if you wanted to see a movie. Uh, occasionally, they would be on television, um, but uh, we had much less access to them. We couldn't just watch them over and over the way you can now. Um, what I've seen more recently are spoofs of Mary Poppins, where. Um, where they re-edit it to make it look like a horror movie. And there's there are a couple of different versions I've seen like that. Scary Mary, she blows in on the wind. And they're really funny watching Mary Pop because there are moments in that movie, because she's using magic, there are moments that look completely weird. Um, and when you sequence them together in the right way, they look terrifying. <laughs> so um so uh so you might want to check out those on youtube they're pretty funny also uh if uh, there's a there was this was kind of a fad a few years ago of people making movies deliberately making trailers for movies that deliberately were not what the movie was like you know, where you're changing the genre completely. Um, and Scary Mary was an example of that, where okay, this is really a children's movie, but we're presenting as, as if it's a horror movie. Another one that was really funny was a, a, a trailer that, for The Shining, which is a horror movie, but was made to look like a warm family, family rom-com. <laughs> and it was also hilarious. They even just they bent the name just a little bit so it's not the shining. It's shining. Sounds so much more friendly. Um but uh I haven't seen Mary Poppins recently enough to have an opinion. Jason Thayer says, "What are your five top favorite bands or solo musicians?" Oh, I don't have I I don't have a formulated answer to that question. I don't really keep a list of favorite bands or performers. Um I um how would I answer that? I I'm pretty diverse in my tastes musically. Um I like a lot of different kinds of music. Some kinds I like more than others. I, for example, I tend not to like really placid music. I like toe tapping music. I like music that has a beat that is energetic. And I like music for the most part, that's happy. That sounds happy. Um, I, as a result, I like a lot of different genres. I like rock. I like country. I like classical. I like folk, including not just 20th century folk music. I mean, I listen to folk music from the 1700s and the 1800s and earlier. Um, in fact, 
that that happened at Christmas vigil mass. So I went to vigil mass for Christmas yesterday and we get to communion and they have, you know, um, um, some, some musicians there who are doing the music for the mass, including some violinists. And all of a sudden the violinists start playing green sleeves. And I'm going, why are you playing green sleeves for the communion segment of mass? Green sleeves is a hundreds. It's, it's a folk song. It is hundreds of years old and it's been used in multiple different contexts. Um, and I'm going, and I'm familiar with these other contexts for green sleeves. And it's like the, da, 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 da. I'm not doing it right, but that's kind of an Im- brief impression of green sleeves. You can look up the tune if you want the details. But I, and I said, why are you using green sleeves as folk tune for, for communion? And so I did a quick check and, oh, one of the applications of green sleeves is what child is this? Okay. So it does have a Christmas connection because all the other music they were doing for mass was Christmas music, you know, religious Christmas music. Um, I mean, they didn't do Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, thank God. Um, but uh, but that's an illustration. I, my musical tastes are very diverse. I did not immediately associate the tune green sleeves with the Christmas song, What Child Is This? Um, in terms of artists that I've been listening to recently, um, that I have on my phone, um, I have been recently listening to, well, okay, so here's one on YouTube. There's a guy named Aaron who runs a channel called Sycorax Rock. And Sycorax Rock is a Doctor Who reference. And one of the things that Aaron has been doing on his channel is a project called 13 Songs for 13 Doctors, where he, he takes a song that was on the radio when a given actor was playing Doctor Who. And then he, he does a video and a song about, he uses that song as, uh, he rewrites the lyrics, but he, he uses uh, that song as the basis for making a new song in a video about that actor playing Doctor Who. So for example, um, the third doctor was John Pertwee. He came on in 1970. He lasted till about 1974, 1975. And um, on the radio during that time was David Bowie's song, Life on Mars. Well, one of the characteristics of the third Doctor Who was for most of his run, he was stuck on Earth. He, the Time Lords had deprived him of his knowledge of time travel. And so he was stuck here. And so uh, Aaron took David Bowie's Life on Mars and warped it into Life on Earth as a song about the third doctor. Then um, for the fourth doctor, Tom Baker, he took the song, which was on the air in the later 1970s, uh, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, and rewrote it as Pridonian Rhapsody, since the Doctor Who was a member of the Pridonian house on Gallifrey. And his 13 songs for 13 doctors are, are by and large outstanding. Um, I mean, they mean even more if you know, not only are they musically good, but they, they mean if you're a fan of Dr. Who and you know, the references, they're really very clever and, uh, and they sound really good. And so I, I, 
I downloaded the videos, took the MP3, stuck them on my phone, and I've got a, a playlist that I listen to of these. I highly recommend Sycorax Rock if you're a Doctor Who fan. Aaron deserves way more views. So go subscribe to his channel if you're a Doctor Who fan and check out the 13 Songs for 13 Doctors project. Um, so he's someone I'm listening to right now. Also, uh, lately, I started going back and re-listening to the Marshall Tucker Band, who um, they they were a Southern, the Southern rock slash country band from the 1970s and 80s. Um, I've been listening to them. Um, but I just, I like a lot of different people. I listen to some David Bowie at times. Um, just yesterday, I listened to his song, The Laughing Gnome, um, which is a comedy novelty song he did back, I guess, in the early 70s, late 60s. Um, but those are some of the people I've been listening to lately. But a lot of what I listen to is traditional music that's not really artist focused. Um, it's uh, like, for example, I'll listen to English country dance music, which uh, tends to be tunes that are traditional tunes that go back to some of them to the 1600s, some of them earlier. And there are certain bands that perform them. Like one of the bands is called bare necessities. Um, they're really good, but I'm more focused on the tune than I am on who's performing it. And it just jumped again on me. So let's see. Oh, there's the link I posted. Trying to find where I, where we left off. I guess I'll just dive in. Um, Steely says, if to, if to a population of Catholics was separated and out of communication with Rome for a long period, like on a different planet, how would they go about determining matters of doctrine? Well, um, they, assuming they were doctrinally educated, they would know what the uh, existing church teaching was and at, at the time they lost contact with Earth. And then they would have to do their best with theology in terms of applying that doctrine and finding answers to new questions. These wouldn't be authoritative answers since they're out of communication with the magisterium, but they could do their best to try to apply the doctrinal principles that they were aware of to new situations and, and figure things out from there. But it would, their conclusions would be in the realm of theology, which is a matter of opinion rather than doctrine, which is a matter of teaching. Have you tried chat GPT? If so, what are your thoughts on how good it is compared to past language models? GPT-4 being many times better, we could be close to a singularity of some kind. So I'm aware of chat GPT, and I've actually done a little bit of looking to see if I could access it. But thus far, I have not found a way to access it. Um, if someone knows where I can do that, without having to install a special program or um, or buy a subscription, send me a link. I'd, I'd be interested. Mysterious at sqpn.com. 
Chris says, uh, Chris H says, I was at church and wondering if no one went to church to worship God, do you think God would be indifferent to it or might not be pleased with it? Um, Well, God does not need our worship. Our worship is for us. It's not for God. Um, God does not need anything. He has a saity. He exists in a perfect state by himself. Um, So, and he cannot be hurt. He cannot experience, not literally, he cannot literally experience negative emotion. So it wouldn't make him sad um, or hurt or angry in any literal way if people did not go to worship him. But he would recognize that we're hurting ourselves by neglecting our relationship with our creator. And and he would recognize that that is a bad thing, that we are we're in an objectively bad state if we are not thinking about and relating to our creator. And so um, he would be concerned about that. Um, And you could figuratively, as the Old Testament does, you could figuratively describe that as God being angry or feeling betrayed or things like that. Um, those are images that the Old Testament uses. They're not literally what's going on with God because he's in a state of perfection, but they do communicate what it would be like for a human being to be treated the way we're treating God. It would be like betrayal and insult and and indifference. And as I do so much for you and you don't even care. Um, so, uh, but, so that's an answer. Nick says, would evangelization violate the Federation's prime directive? Oh, see, the prime directive doesn't uh, make any sense. And it's also going to depend on whose version of the prime directive you're talking about, because it's been articulated differently. Um, I would say that some versions of the prime directive would prohibit some forms of evangelization and other versions might not. Uh, because, uh, but at least among members of the Federation, the prime directive does not apply to them. And so you could certainly evangelize other members of the Federation. Whether you could evangelize people who are not members of the Federation will depend on the degree to which they're subject to the prime directive and the version of the prime directive that is currently in force. Okay, so we've been going for two and three quarters hours. We'll go for at least another 15 minutes and see how far we get. Kevin Radigan says, unsure if this was answered, but here goes. What advice do you have for avoiding lust and living the celibate life well? Thanks for everything you do. Um. Well, um, okay, don't think about sex more than more than is unavoidable. Um, if you're if you if you want to live celibately, um, you don't want to be dwelling on if you want to live continent now, okay, so we got to clarify terms. Celibate just means unmarried. That's all celibate means. If you are celibate, you should also be continent 
continent in this context means not having sexual relations or not having sexual activity going on. And um, so if if you're not if you're celibate, then you should be continent and therefore don't do things that would stir up desires to have sex. Um, Think about other stuff. Distract yourself. Take cold showers. Think about intellectual puzzles. But, you know, don't when sexual thoughts or feelings come up, you don't want to freak out about them because that'll only reinforce them. Um, Just recognize them. Set them aside. Don't worry about it. Do something else. Alfonso Galvin says, you mentioned Father Gabriel Amorth and his judgment. Can you further elaborate? Um, Well, I could. uh, But what I would suggest is um, looking up some articles online by Dr. Edward Peters. Uh, He's a canon lawyer here in America. He has written reviews of Father Amor's books. He's very charitable. In fact, in some ways, I think he's he's more charitable than than I might be in some of them. Um, but if you Google Edward Peters and Gabriel Amorth, you should get his uh, his um, you should get uh, some articles that he wrote that will be of assistance. But uh, Father Amorth was a apparently a self-promoter who inflated his importance in this. I mean, he would get billed and he apparently didn't correct people. He would get billed as the chief exorcist of Rome when he wasn't. Um, And he, he claimed to perform exorcisms vastly out of proportion to what seems realistic, at least if you're obeying the church's rules, because you need written authorization from your bishop if you're going to exercise somebody. And he claimed to perform like 30,000 exorcisms. Okay, that would be multiple exorcisms per day for decades. Really? And if he was doing that, how did, how did, how is it in compliance with, with what church law requires? of an exorcist. And if it's not, then he's either poorly educated or willfully defying the law or something is wrong in the state of Denmark. Um, So there are a variety of problems with Father Amworth. Saul says, could God infuse the soul into the intelligent AI that was created in a non-normative way, though, like how children born by artificial means get a soul, could an AI created by us have the same? Um, so as far as I'm aware, it would be an open question theologically about whether God could infuse a soul into an AI. Um, the uh, and and having a very healthy respect for God's omnipotence, I would say God can do anything that's not logically impossible. Um, I don't have an argument that the idea of a of an AI with a soul is logically impossible, meaning it contains a contradiction in terms. So at present, I would assume God could infuse a an AI with a soul. However. I don't have any good evidence of that happening or it being likely to happen. It would be a little bit like, um, uh, suppose I have a stone 
can God infuse a soul into this stone? You know, because stones like AIs don't have consciousness. Um, so, you know, well, I guess God could infuse a soul into a stone. And I guess God could infuse a soul into an AI. And I guess God could infuse a soul into a um, into a metal crowbar. But I don't have evidence of that ever having happened. And I don't have evidence of it being likely to happen at any point in the future. I don't. Similarly, I don't have God. For all I know, God could infuse a soul into a car. But um, but. You know, aside from the show, My Mother, the Car, and maybe Knight Rider, I'm not aware of any cars that have souls in the real world. And and I don't expect any cars to have souls in the real world. So I couldn't eliminate the possibility, but I don't have any basis for expecting it to happen. What is the proper way to understand the term? This is A, Bell, C. Uh, what is the proper way to understand the term vocation? Is it an umbrella term that encompasses many different ways to serve God, or does it refer, only refer to the priesthood, married, or religious life? So um, the traditional usage of the term vocation refers to priesthood, married life, and the consecrated life, or the religious life, and not to other things. Other things are, uh, are not vocations the way those three are. Um, in, in particular, the single life is not a vocation, um, not the way the term is traditionally used. And, and because you don't have an option if you're, I mean, you're either, you're called to be a Christian, regardless of what else is happening in your life. So if you're single, you are called to live as a single Christian, so long as you are single. Um, but being single you have the option to become one of these other things. You could take vows and enter the consecrated life. You could take vows and enter the married life. You could make promises and become ordained and enter into a new stable mode of life. Once you're in that state of life, you can't just go back to being single. So being single is a state of potentiality that can become one of these enduring stable modes of serving God that you can't just walk out of. You can't just walk away from a marriage. You can't just walk away from religious vows. You can't just walk away from ordination, not in a morally legitimate way. Whereas if you're single, you can walk away from anything you're temporarily involved in because you haven't vowed to anything. You haven't made vows to another person to marry them. You haven't made vows to a religious order to be part of it. You haven't made promises to a bishop to be ordained. You can walk away at any stage. You're free. And you're not free if you're ordained or married or um, in religious life. So there, so that's the basis for the distinction between um, those ways, which are stable. Once you voluntarily enter them, you can't just split. Whereas other ways of serving God are entirely voluntary. And so um, I find it, and this actually happens at my own parish, where they pray, they've been having a, a request for prayers for vocations, and they name priesthood, religious, married, and single. And I'm going, you just named everybody. Because you're either a priest, or you're married, or both, if you're an Eastern Rite or consecrated, 
or single. There are no other options. So, um, I mean, there there's just no other possibility. So you just said, let's pray for vocations for everybody. Well, everyone has a vocation in that by that definition. So it's it makes no sense. But that's the way the terms are traditionally used. I can't rule out the possibility of them being used other ways because language changes. But that's the reason why also the reason why they're used that way traditionally. Let's see. What is your view about Pope Francis limiting priests from celebrating the Latin Mass? Well, um, so he did it because he was concerned about um, uh, traditional Latin Mass communities having anti-magisterial um, attitudes, which is a fair point. Some of them do. Uh, he did it, I'm sure, I know, based, he doesn't attend those churches himself, so he was doing it based on what he'd been told. Um, I think he may well have been told exaggerated things about uh, what about the attitudes that are prevalent in those communities. And I think it's a sad thing that uh, that he made that decision. I, If I were Pope, I wouldn't have made that decision. On the other hand, um, I, I understand that there is legitimacy to saying, hey, these communities are fostering anti-magisterial attitudes, and that's a problem, and some of them are. Um, I would, I would think there would be other better solutions. And I would say, if you're unhappy about it, I understand that. I would be unhappy. I was unhappy about it. I don't even attend the traditional Latin mass and I was unhappy. But if you want a future Pope or even this Pope to revisit it in the future, the way to do that is by showing both your interest in the Latin mass the traditional at mass and that you're a loyal son of the church who is not simply angry at the magisterium. If all you do is complain and I resist using a word that starts with B right there, but if all you're doing is complaining about the magisterium and complaining about decisions, Pope Francis or other recent popes have made, that's going to reinforce the tendency for popes to do what Pope Francis did. You can't just complain, or the B word, you can't just complain and expect good results. You're going to turn people off, including people who are in the episcopacy. And if you want them to do what you want, you know what your mom said. You catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So bear that in mind. I know it can be fun to complain. I know it can be fun to feed those dark impulses and get that rush of feeling superior to other people. Look at how much better I am than them. I never would have done that. That was there. They are so small and so misguided and so benighted. Um, yeah. Okay. That's something that needs to be checked. It may be true that Pope Francis made a mistake here, but you're not going to get it undone. You're not going to get anything constructive done simply by complaining. And it's understandable to have concern and disappointment, and those can all be expressed. But, um, but if you want the situation reversed, you need to go out of your way to show how loyal you are 
in spite of the fact that you prefer this other form of liturgy. And then you can make the case. I can be a loyal son and prefer this. And I'm not just going to attack and be spiteful and resentful and, and virtue signal. Um, because virtue signaling does happen, including in the traditional Latin mass community, as well as in the progressive community and in every community. So few thoughts on that. Let's see. Um, Chow Feng says, what is the status of the Shroud of Turin episode? Um, as I explained earlier, I've put that on the back burner. The research issues are just too massive. Uh, binary name says, how should we encourage someone, Muslim, Jewish, etc., to be open to Christianity if they're terrified that worshiping Jesus is idolatrous? What can we tell them to alleviate their concerns? Okay. so. The um, the first thing to say is that you understand their concern um, that uh, that, you know, idolatry, worshiping someone other than God as God is wrong. You understand that that's a horror and it, and one is right to be horrified by that. Then. It would be important as kind of stage two to. Um, help them understand that it is possible for God to incarnate as a human being. You know, it's not within, it's not beyond the power of his omnipotence to do that. So we can understand, okay, yeah, worshiping someone who is not God is wrong. It is possible for God to incarnate as a human being. Then we may wish to present them with evidence that there was uh, a basis in Jewish revelation prior to the time of Christ for the idea that there is some kind of plurality in the Godhead. This is a possible step three or four. You could put it in a number of different places, but there is, th there were hints prior to the time of Christ that there was some kind of multiplicity in the Godhead. Um, the Protestant scholar, Michael Heiser has uh, like a three hour lecture on that called the Jewish Trinity, if I recall, it's on YouTube. So you can check that out for more information about that. Um, and then you want to show them, okay, we have good reason to believe in the New Testament, that it's accurate. And the New Testament indicates that not only is it possible for God to incarnate as a human being, but that he did that in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, based on the reliability of the New Testament, is God. And thus, we need to worship him. So those are the key elements in the uh, in the uh, in the process that one would need to work through. The details, of course, will vary depending on the individual. But those are the general points that I would make. <clears throat> Physicist says Mormon parents hostile towards the dogma of the Trinity. Hard to use scriptural evidence to show them. It makes me sad. Any tips? Well, I think I I I just um, I just went through. I guess kind of the basic things that I would point out to someone. In the case of someone coming from a Mormon perspective, the key step is going to be, or at least one of the steps that's most likely to be of assistance, is showing the 
um, the the basis in the Old Testament for there being some kind of plurality in the Godhead, although they may be aware. I mean, as I assume you would be if if your parents are Mormon, uh, they may say, oh, well, we believe there is plurality in the Godhead. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. And they're right. The the they are three distinct persons. The question is, is there one God ultimately? And are they each God? And, you know, the uh, those are the points that the discussion may end up going to. And there are various New Testament verses to illustrate those points. Laura Moon says, which Jane Austen heroine do you find most attractive and why? Or do you prefer the Bronte heroines to Austen? I am a Janeite and a Jimmyite. Okay. My wife, Renee, was the 19th century British women's author literature expert. I am not. I got I I I got drug along to watch um uh the miniseries of so I've seen like I've seen the 1980s Pride and Prejudice miniseries and I've seen some of their other stuff. Um I've read a little bit of the front of Northanger Abbey which was hilarious. Um but uh and you know I'm familiar with some of these stories. I don't really have favorites among the characters. Um, I mean, like I know who Rochester is and things like that. And I, um, but I'm afraid your knowledge of, of this area of literature exceeds mine. And I'm glad that you enjoy it. Kyle Whittington says, what is your favorite conspiracy theory surrounding the Jesuits? I don't really have one. Um, I, uh, I don't. I mean, you know, I'm aware of conspiracy theories about the Jesuits. Like they, they take this horrendous oath. Um, this was a big one in the 19th century. The Jesuits are, you know, secretly plotting to subvert America and they take this oath to kill Protestants and stuff like that. And none of that was true. Um, it, it, and I, I, I tend to be, um, I tend to be um, more annoyed by conspiracy theories about the Jesuits than anything else. Uh, Let's see. Max McNiff says, when is Jimmy going to get his ham radio license? Well, I already did. I got one when I was 13. I assume it's not valid anymore, but I could be mistaken about that. I know I've forgotten Morse code. I can still do SOS in an emergency, though. But other than that, I've forgotten Morse code. John Harson says, what do you think about the fact that everybody pretended that the tomb of Alexander was lost to the ages because a mosque sits on it? Um, well, I don't think that people were pretending. So this is a reference to, uh, to, Alexandria in Alexa- to Alexander the Great, who was buried in Alexandria, Egypt. And we even know, we know a good bit about his tomb because we have records that describe aspects of it. Um, we also have information describing where uh, it was located. It was like at this intersection of two major streets in Alexandria. And, um, and, and nobody knows exactly where it is today because we, 
they've built modern Alexandria over ancient Alexandria, and we haven't torn up the modern city to learn everything there is to know about the ancient city. Uh, you could propose that some people um, know where it is, and they're keeping that secret or quiet because there's a mosque over the site. And it would cause an uproar to uproot the mosque. That's possible. I'm open to entertaining that theory. I also don't have proof of that theory. A lot of other people have thought that the tomb of Alexander the Great is elsewhere. And so I haven't dug into the evidence and don't have a firm opinion. Joshua Muse says, hello, Jimmy. Merry Christmas. Uh, What is your favorite favorite music genre and artist in that genre. I don't have one. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I'm very musically eclectic Uh, in terms of modern genres. I like rock. I like country. I like electronic. I like certain types of classical music. I mean, I like Bach, for example. I, I don't like a lot of the more romantic era and in this case, romantic doesn't mean what you would think. It's it's a term of art in music. But like a lot of the a lot of the I tend to go for like Bach and Mozart rather than um, Tchaikovsky, for example. Um, I don't like slow music. I like toe tapping music. Um, I like I think I said I like electronic. I like f- various eras of folk music. Um, so pretty diverse. Chow Feng says, when will this episode be available on Apple Podcast? You know, I don't know. Um, I don't really load the episodes into Apple Podcasts. Dom does that. Uh, this will be available immediately after it. I mean, there may be a brief processing period, but otherwise it'll be available immediately once we end the live stream on um, on YouTube. And... Um, I guess I can ask Dom if if about the possibility of putting it into Apple Podcasts, but I know we have other things coming out. Uh, I mean, before um, next Friday, uh, there's going to be a bonus episode on Wednesday uh, for Mysterious World on the interpretation of the Book of Revelation. So there's that coming out. And I know Dom is concerned about not overloading the amount of material we send out. So this may be a YouTube exclusive. I'm not sure if it's going to end up in the podcast feed, but we'll we'll figure that out. Rogue Frog says, would you consider doing an episode on D&D and the Satanic Panic? Um, We've discussed that already on the show. Uh, We had a request to discuss that, and we did. Um, It's in one of the weird questions episodes, I believe. Um, And it's part of the reason we did it that way is because there's there's not much of a mystery there. Um, Back in the 1990s and 80s, there was a moral panic about Dungeons and Dragons and Satanism, and they kind of overlapped as moral panics. But there's no real mystery there. And so it's not a it it, it didn't really fit the mysterious world format to to do that, because mysterious world is not about critiquing other people's religious positions. It's about mysteries, and that may mean critiquing 
religious ideas at various points, but here's a moral lecture on Dungeons and Dragons and the satanic panic. It's not mysterious enough. So we handled it another way. It just changed again. Okay. Uh, Mr. Anderson says Tchaikovsky is awesome. Glad you enjoy it. I haven't enjoyed him that much from what I've heard. Ilhasa 7 says, is heaven a place where nothing ever happens? No, that is not what heaven is like. Uh, sometimes because people are aware that God is outside of time, they think heaven must be outside of time as well. Not true. Not church teaching. The church teaches that um, that time is an aspect of all created beings, and time involves change. And so as created beings, we will always be subject to time. It may be time of a different sort than what we experience in this life, or it may be time exactly like we experience it in this life. But we always will be subject to change, and there always will be change. We are described in Scripture, in the eternal order, as ruling God's kingdom. So ruling and running God's kingdom is what involves tasks and goals and and things like that. And so heaven is a place where that stuff will be happening. Dodie says, is Jimmy reading YouTube chat or something else? I'm reading YouTube chat. Ilhasa 7 says Jimmy is kapha, so he likes to move. I don't know what kapha means in this context. That's interesting. I do need to hydrate, continue hydrating. Now, we've been going for three hours, and I've done four hours in live streams before, so I'm, I'm game to keep going if people continue to have questions. Uh, obviously, if you need to go, you know, Thank you for stopping by. I hope you've enjoyed the event, but you're also welcome to stay. If you're newer in the event, if you've come along more recently, you're also welcome to stay. And because this will be archived on YouTube, you can always watch it later if you miss part of it. By the way, uh, also want to say another thank you to Deliver Contacts for sponsoring the event. Uh, that was unexpected. We announced it so uh, recently. I mean, just with two days warning and they really stepped up and said they uh, they wanted to sponsor it. So um, if you have a need for contacts, then consider uh, using deliver contacts. They you can hear their sponsorship uh, spots in all of our recent regular mysterious world videos. Jonathan Wheeler says, how tall are you, Jimmy? I'm six feet tall. Um, Ian says, what are your thoughts on the Mayan calendar? Uh, there's some interesting stuff there relating to multiples in discovery. And I've often considered how, considered how it might tie in with Catholicism. Okay. So, um, the Mayan calendar was big in the news back leading up to the year 2012, because there was an event that they have uh, what's known as a long count in the Mayan calendar. And the long count was going to change over. Uh, it's kind of the equivalent of a, like going to the year 2000, where, where millennia or 2001, where a millennium changes over on the Gregorian calendar. They were having something like that happening. And there was all kinds of rumors in the news. 
about it's going to be the end of the world and there's this Mayan prophecy. There was no Mayan prophecy. The Mayans never predicted the end of the world at the change of the long count. So that was all just hype. Um, In terms of the calendar itself, I think it's an interesting calendar. It works on different principles than the calendar that we use. Um, And, and it's mathematically interesting. It's, it's based around different cycles and months and so forth. Um, I'm a calendar fan. Uh, I remember one thing that my mom bought me when I was a kid was a book of calendars. And the reason she bought it, she originally wasn't going to buy it. But we were in a bookstore and I was, I don't know, 14 years old, maybe. And they had this book of world calendars and it was an oversized book. It was paperback, but it was oversized and it was so fascinating to me. And I asked mom if um, if we could get it. And she said no. And I just continued to look at it. And as she was going about her business in the bookstore, and finally she came up to me and said, you can't take your eyes off, can you? And I said, no. And she bought it for me. And I I believe I still have it. Um, but I, I love calendars. And I think the Mayan calendar is a very interesting calendar. I'm not aware of any connections it has to the Catholic faith, because obviously it was developed before contact with Europeans. Um, and I don't think it has any mystical, magical significance, but I think it's fascinating as a, as a timekeeping system. Peter the Hermit says, should Christians have beards? Well, not the women. Um, in terms of men, well, um, there is not a, it is not a moral obligation to have a beard. Um, on the other hand, uh, I there there are evolutionary reasons why we have them, and so um, you know they are a secondary sexual characteristic, and and I am in favor of men being manly, and so I'm in favor of men having beards, but it's not a moral requirement. I'm also in favor of women being womanly. Looking for any more cues. By the way, if you're new and you have a question, please put a capital Q and a uh, um, in front of it so I can identify it quickly as a question. Nobody says we are redeemed in the incarnation. What is Easter? Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It occurs in conjunction with Passover, which was the Jewish holiday on which he was uh, crucified. And the name for Easter in most languages other than English is a variation of the word Pesach, which is Hebrew for Passover. And that gets brought into different languages as Pasch and Pasqua and so forth. English is kind of an outlier as a name in English. Easter is kind of an outlier as a name in English. In most languages, the name for Easter is a variation on the word Passover. Corey says, question, would a copy of a saint's works in no in one's library be considered a relic? For example, the Diary of St. Faustina, which I own. Not unless the book was owned by the saint in question. In that case, it would be regarded as a second-class relic. Um, but it, uh, it 
just because it was written by someone and is a new printing, it would it is not classically considered a relic. Edward G says, I think my question has been missed by two of the three refreshes in the chat. Could you talk about what you know about egregores, Jimmy? Okay. So I have done a little bit of of reading about egregores. Um, it's an occult concept that um, is going to, and it may be understood different ways by different groups of people. So what I'm about to say may not represent all understanding of egregores, but um, basically it re- they represent um, non physical. So the term egregos or egregos in Greek means wakeful. And, um, and these are supposed to be non-physical entities that um, are, if I understand them correctly, are basically the same thing as what are referred to in other contexts, in other contexts as thought forms. Um, the idea of a thought form is something that got discussed in theosophy and in in various uh, Asian belief systems. The idea is that um, ideas can take on lives of their own. So if you have someone who is psychic enough or a group of people, and this is more commonly the case, a group of people who believe in something, they... Um, that idea can kind of take on some reality of its own. Um, and and there's even an episode of the X-Files about that, where they refer to a thought form as a tulpa, which is one of the names for thought forms. My understanding is egregores is essentially the same concept. Um, I recently, I was... Uh, I was in a class uh, with the parapsychologist. It was being taught by the parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach. And um, and he was telling a story about like back in the 1980s or something when channeling was a big deal. Um, he was on a television show. He's being interviewed on like a local news show or something, local talk show. And one of the other guests claimed to be channeling the goddess Athena. And um, and so he was intrigued by that. You know, he didn't really believe that she's the goddess Athena, but um, or that that's who that she's channeling the goddess Athena. But he talked to the woman um, afterwards and said, so so tell me about, you know, the goddess Athena. And 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 the woman said, you know, really, the goddess Athena is a thought form. That um, that, you know, there were these people who believed in her. And so she kind of took on this reality. And that's what I'm channeling. It's this thought form of the goddess Athena. And and I said in the class, I said, so is that why they say Athena sprang from the forehead of Zeus? Because she's a thought form. And uh, Lloyd gave me points for uh, figurative points for uh for noticing that connection. Um, but I haven't read a lot of literature devoted to egregores in themselves. I, I know the basic concept, but I haven't done a lot of reading beyond that. Uh, just jumped again. Let me see. I'm scrolling up and seeing some questions I haven't covered yet. 
Ah, okay, good. Um, Zach says, question, uh, Jimmy, would you say that the that Mary Poppins is not a good movie for Christian children because Mary Poppins has magic powers that can be construed as witchcraft? Um, no, um, Mary Poppins has magic in it, but so does Lord of the Rings. Uh, this is fantasy magic. This is not real witchcraft. Unless there's something um, broken with your child, they are not going to be tempted to go out and 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 worship the devil um, because of what they see Mary Poppins do. They're, they may play magic. Um, they may wonder about magic, but... Um, but it is not real magic. It is fantasy magic. I, it's, it's like watching superheroes have superpowers. You know, they may wonder, um, ooh, I wonder what it would be like to have superpowers. They may play like they have superpowers. They may even wonder if it would be possible for them to have superpowers. But, um, but it's, it, it, reality will teach them fairly quickly. This does not have any real effect. So, um, so no, this is fantasy magic. This is not something that glorifies worshiping the devil or anything like that. Samantha says, question for my son. If you have seen Stranger Things, thoughts on the upside down, the monsters there, and any connection to the myths or ideas about hell in our real world. So I saw the first season of Stranger Things several years ago, and I I know the upside down, at least my memory of the upside down, is that it's a kind of nightmare dimension. Um but I I don't really remember a whole lot more than that. And I'm not aware of it having any literal connection to our hell. Uh, there are uh, scary places in the world. And in order to generate interesting stories, there need to be scary things in the stories. And especially if it's going to be a scary story, it needs to have scary things in it. And um, imagining a place that exists all around us where there are monsters is a kind of scary idea. And so I would say it's just a scary idea for a story. Um, You know, we don't have any evidence that any such place really exists. It's just an interesting idea to think about and an interesting idea to use in a scary story. Joe Hicks three says in his homily, my pastor said, if he could witness two events in his earthly ministry, they would be the resurrection of Lazarus and the nativity. What would your two events be? Um, probably one of them would be the resurrection and, um, another, I don't know. I, I don't know. I would, what I would be more interested in than witnessing is, um, being able to have a private conversation with Jesus and ask him lots of questions in, in, you know, including personal ones about how do I get to heaven? Um, you know, what are the practical tips here? Um, but, um, I want to kind of, you know, reality check, make sure I'm where I need to be. Um, but I, in terms of what I'm doing in my life and so forth, uh, but I'd love to see the resurrection and I'd love to have, be able to have a conversation with Jesus. I would also be terrified to have a conversation with Jesus.
Let's see. Uh, Wiggly Shirt says, general advice for a new convert in his mid-20s discerning marriage. Um, well, in terms of general advice, you know, be careful. Um, because a lot of, you know, something like a third of marriages fail and you don't want that to happen. Now, actually that third of marriages tends to be the repeat failures. Um, the chance of an individual, there are certain, there's a certain percentage of the population that, that are serial marriers um, and they drive up the numbers. So the numbers are not actually as bad as, as they look. So you want to be cautious, uh, but you don't want to be too cautious because if you become too cautious, you'll get paralyzed and you'll not end up, um, you'll, you'll, you'll end up missing good opportunities. So uh, be, be bold in, 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 you know, be chaste, obviously, but be bold in exploring relationships as they say, uh, as they say, and as they sing in the in the operetta Iolanthe, faint heart near one fair lady. That's, I mean, that's frankly, that's part of my problem. I am shy around women. And I would have, even after my wife died, you know, I, I had a lot of healing to go through. I would love to get remarried. I really wanted to get remarried, but I'm shy around women. So don't make the mistake I did and be a little bolder. Um, Father John Brown, SJ. Oh, I'm tem- so tempted to do a John Brown, is that your name? You know, ask me again and I'll tell you the same. Put in tame uh, as in, what is it? Uh, John Brown, that's my name. Ask me again and I'll tell you the same. There's Now I'm forgetting the link to the part about knocking someone down. Anyway, welcome, Father John Brown, SJ. Question, why the old code of canon law prohibited beards for clergy? Um, well, I have to look and verify that. The old code did prohibit some some things that are rather surprising for beards. Um, canons 138 and 139, for example, in the old code, um, prohibit, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, prohibit priests from engaging uh, in a variety of activities that could be confusing for laity. Uh, like it didn't want them hunting and it didn't want them going into taverns unnecessarily, you know, hanging out and drinking at bars. It didn't want them uh, performing surgery um, because, you know, if you lose a patient, then it could alienate the patient's family from the church. Um, this is, by the way, this is going to come up in um, in late in the second two weeks in February in our episodes on dowsing. Um, and uh, so there were prohibitions on the clergy doing a variety of things. But the common element was the church was concerned that these things could be alienating for uh, for. Uh, and could cause confusion for people if they saw a priest doing them. And one of the um, one of the classic in the West, one of the classic things about priests was that they were clean shaven and tonsured, that they also had a special haircut. And and that made them visually distinct from the laity. Um, In fact, I remember reading um, about like one of the. Anglo-Saxon um, 
kings that was opposed to William of of uh, of Normandy. I'm sorry, William the Conqueror um, in 1066. And the French have just come over. They're going to invade England and they're all clean shaved. And one of the native Anglo-Saxon kings, it's like they're an army of priests because they don't have any facial hair. They don't have beards or mustaches or whatever. And so um, I would I would suggest that um, that this was a relic of that, that the image of clean shaven had become associated with the clergy in the West, and it would be confusing uh, for um, a clergyman to look like a layman at the time. And and so there was at least enough of a memory of that association for the old code, assuming that this memory is accurate, that there was um, uh, there was a. Um, enough of a memory of clean shavenness being a a mark of the clergy to want to preserve it in the time period uh, uh, under which the 1917 code of canon law was issued. Or it could have been just that beards in the West were, although this wasn't really true. I was going to say it could be that beards were not reputable at the time, but that wasn't true in the 19th century at all in Europe. Uh, or in America, beards kind of fell out of fashion in America in the mid in the first half of the 20th century. But that that wouldn't have affected the code of canon law that was that came out in 1917. So I would think it would be because of the previous association of clean shavenness with the clergy. I Kung Fu You Too, who is one of our regular commenters on Mysterious World. Nice to see you, I Kung Fu You Too. Uh, says, hey, Jimmy, Merry Christmas. Likewise, and to everybody, Merry Christmas. Um, what is your take on the Father Frank Pavone mass? Um, I'm going to need to, uh, I'm afraid I'm really not in a position to be able to go into that in any kind of detail. Um, I understand the legal arguments involved. I understand the different perspectives that people have on that, but I'm, I'm not in a, I'm not in a position right now to really be able to offer an opinion. Anthony Carrero says, uh, what is more important as a source of worship for a Catholic sacred scripture or the rosary? Well, okay, it depends on what you mean, um, because sacred scripture is the word of God, and it can obviously be very valuable, therefore, as a source of information for use in worship. Um, The rosary is not divine worship. Principally, it's Marian devotion. Now, there is a little bit of divine worship in there because it has our fathers, for example, in it. But the rosary is principally about Marian devotion, not divine worship. And scripture is not itself um, is not itself about worship. It's about learning God's word, which impacts worship. And so scripture has a, a role in worship. That's why we read scripture at mass um and in scripture informs the prayers of the mass you know like when we say lord i am not worthy to receive you we're quoting what the uh, roman centurion said to jesus in scripture so scripture informs worship um and as such i would say if i if i'm even though the 
even though there's a, a kind of asymmetry and neither one of them is directly engaging divine worship, I would say scripture is more important. That's why we read scripture at mass and, and scripture informs the prayers of the mass. Whereas we don't say the rosary at mass and the rosary does not inform the prayers of the mass, not that are part of the ordinary of the mass or even the, um, the variable parts. Um, so I guess that's what I'd have to say there. Also, scripture is universal among Christians and the rosary is not. Um, even in the Catholic Church, it's the Latin rite that developed the rosary. And it has spread to be used in some other rites as well. But it is not used universally even in the Catholic Church. It's a private voluntary devotion. And some traditions um, within the Catholic Church, some Eastern Catholic traditions, do not use it. They have other equivalents, like, for example, the Achathist hymn. Let's see. Uh, Peter the Hermit, are you going to do a Mysterious World episode on the First Crusade? Well, I, I, um, I am not, have not been planning on it. I would need to know some mystery uh, to be solved in connection with that. And I have done episodes on Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which has a tie to the idea of the Crusades. I also did an episode on the Knights Templar. Uh, so I've, I've done episodes on aspects of things related to the First Crusade, but I would have to know uh, both know of a mystery connected with the first crusade and have adequate re ad adequate resources to be able to research it uh, in order to produce a good episode on that. And thus far I, I haven't encountered one. <clears throat> okay. Not the FBI says, what is your academic background? During the Waco video, you mentioned being in graduate school in 1993. However, I never really hear about your past. Okay, so um, after completing high school, I went to the University of Arkansas, and um, I got a um, bachelor's degree in philosophy. Uh, so I'm, my academic training is in analytic philosophy. I then uh, pursued a master's degree in philosophy. And uh, as far as the master's degree goes, I'm ABT, which is short for all but thesis. I completed the coursework, but then my wife died and I moved out to California and I planned on completing the master's thesis out here, but life took a different direction and I didn't end up completing it. Um, but I did like teaching in, in, in grad school of intro to philosophy courses. And I actually won some awards uh, for teaching uh, those courses. And um, I got higher rankings on professor evaluations than, than, the, than some of the faculty did. In, uh, in fact, then I think, I think I got the highest rankings one, one or two semesters of everybody, including the regular faculty. Um, subsequent to that, I, I'm an autodidact, and so I'm constantly self-teaching. Uh, I have had some tutoring in uh, New Testament Greek and in Latin and Aramaic. Um, I also have had some tutoring, uh, uh, more informal tutoring, but in canon law. Um, and I'm currently taking uh, classes in parapsychology from the Ryan Research, uh, from the Ryan Education Center. 
And so that's my academic background. Other than that, it's it's autodidactic self-teaching on a whole bunch of subjects. Oh, and I tend not to talk about my background very much academically because I I don't believe in number one, I, I don't have advanced degrees to throw around. And number two, I prefer to focus on the evidence. Um, and so if I have an argument, I'll say, or if I have a piece of evidence, I'll say, here's the evidence or here's the piece of argument. I, I don't, um, I don't cotton to it when I see people, well, as an academic, I say, blah, 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 blah. Is No, just tell them your argument and your evidence. Um, I, you don't need to virtue, you don't need to academic virtue signal. And I don't believe in doing that either. My background is not really relevant to the arguments and the evidence I'm putting forward. So I don't dwell on it because that would, oh, as I went to graduate school, if I was constantly bringing that up, you know, it, it would say something unflattering about me as opposed to just straight ahead. Let's talk about this subject. So I tend not to focus on it and not to bring it up a lot. Um, Oliver Voon says, what do you think of, okay, I've already talked about Father Frank Pavone. Uh, Doty says, what do you think of Malachi Martin? Have you done any podcasts about him? Um, not yet. I, I, I have Malachi Martin on the list. Um, and just recently I was revisiting, um, you know, I, I keep links. I have a big spreadsheet where I keep links of resources uh, to look at when I, I'm working on an episode. And I was recently, you know, relooking at some stuff about Malachi Martin. For people who may not be aware, he used to be a Jesuit priest um, prior to the Second Vatican Council. Um, and then he left the Jesuit order and he wrote a bunch of um wrote a bunch of books, some of which were rather sensationalistic. And, and, and so there is, it is, it is possible for me to do an episode on him. The key is finding the right resources to use. And I think I'm in a better position to do an episode than I once envisioned. Um, I was encouraged by the recent look I was doing back at these resources. Um, but he's another individual that is problematic in various ways. And I would not put a great deal of credence in what you read from Malachi Martin. Um, so that's a kind of general impression that I hope suffices until such time as I'm able to dig in and, and present a, a formal episode on it. El Lobo says, have you heard the story of, of the Basque witches? And will there be an episode on the topic? Um, I'm aware of witch stories from all over Europe. I'm, I don't recall Basque witches in particular, but if you have some resources in English, I'd be happy to take a look at them. Just email them to mysterious at sqpn.com. Rebecca Thompson says, if I'm reading this correctly, she says, touching or church teaching, I think that is, 
it's abbreviated, so it's a little hard to tell. Um, regarding proper treatment of mummified remains, they're scientifically historically valuable, left on display. My feelings want them laid to rest. Um, well, I, uh, I, I understand that. I don't think the faith is going to have a mandate in this issue. Now, a lot of mummified remains are returned to the ground. For example, King Tut. King Tutankhamun is not on public display. Um, he's in, he's actually in his own tomb. Um, he's in the sarcophagus, which they've, I gather they've put it in like an airtight container to protect it from the moisture, which is degrading things in the Valley of the Kings. Um, he, but he's, he's in his own tomb. And um, there are other pharaohs or and other Egyptians that are elsewhere. In some of them are on display in museums, and that's not going to be a deal breaker in itself from a Catholic perspective. What needs to be is reverence for the dead and respect for their remains, and you can have that in a museum. Um, it's it's not the norm. It's not the normal way we show reverence and respect to the dead. We normally in Catholic culture show that by burying people or, you know, their ashes or whatever. Um, But the fundamental requirement is a respectful treatment of the dead. And it is possible to have someone's remains in a museum in a way that is respectful. Um, In fact, people have had public tombs for a long time. If you, you know, if you go to Grant's tomb, well, you know, Grant is buried right there. You maybe not be able to see him because of the way the tomb is constructed, but this is a public monument and people visit it in order to pay their respects. And you can do the same thing in a museum. Uh, being able to see the, uh, the body of a mummy wrapped or unwrapped is not itself determinative of whether you're being respectful or not, that doesn't make a, a fundamental change in the moral situation. And I just had another jump. Let's scroll and see. I'm also quickly looking at, okay, I Kung Fu You Too says, uh, you do the one meal a day diet. What time do you eat? Or would you suggest eating your one meal? So it depends on what your goals are um, and what your, the rest of your schedule is like. From what I understand, the research would support, if you want to one meal a day for weight loss, the research would support eating in the morning and, and sort of powering up for the day. Um, and you may burn slightly more calories if you eat in the morning. But uh, for me, the way my schedule works, it's better for me to eat before bedtime. So I, I consume my calories between, it used to be between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. Uh, now it's between, now I don't start consuming calories except, you know, Christmas Holy Day of Obligation. Well, it is Holy Day of Obligation. It's also a Sunday, so it's Lord's Day. So I'm not fasting today. But um, I I typically uh, start consuming calories at 9 p.m. 
and am done before bedtime. So I'm, I'm, even if I take a long time, it'll, it'll be before 1030, you know, typically before, by the time I'm done, even if I'm being lazy and don't eat all at once. So let's see, we'll take a few more questions. We've got about 15 minutes left and I, I will cut it at the four hour mark because that's enough for today. Um, Edward G says, I am rereading Genesis and just got to the part with Abraham and Sarah in Egypt. Is the implication that Pharaoh slept with Sarah or something else? And what are the implications of the passage? So um, in this passage, um, Abraham has told Sarah, when we go into Egypt, you know, she's, she's beautiful. They're going to want, they're going to want to marry you off to Pharaoh and I'm going to get debted. So I don't want to be debted. So say that you're my sister, because that's kind of true anyway. You're my half sister, because they did things like that back then. And um, and so she so they've deceived Pharaoh into thinking that uh, Sarah is Abraham's sister and he uh, takes Sarah to marry her, which is Pharaoh you could do. And he rewards Abraham. And then before he sleeps with Sarah, um, God indicates things are not going to go well for you if you don't give Sarah back to Abraham. She's really his wife. And so he lets he, he returns him. He returns Sarah to Abraham and sends him away with lots of gifts. Um, so in term, so. Pharaoh does not sleep with Sarah in this passage. Uh, there are other passages in scripture that indicate in cryptic ways that the reader is meant to understand, but that don't say it explicitly that people did sleep together. Like um, in, in the book of Ruth, when Ruth uncovers Boaz's feet. Okay. Foot is a Hebrew euphemism for the male part. And so it's not literally his feet she's uncovering. It's something else. And they sleep together. That's what happens in that story, even though they're being delicate about it. Um, but that's not what's happening with Pharaoh. Pharaoh does not sleep with Abraham. God prevents Pharaoh from sleeping with Abraham. Uh, Pharaoh does not sleep with Sarah. God prevents Pharaoh from sleeping with Sarah and instructs him to give Sarah back to Abraham, which he then does. Um, there. So that's the primary significance of this. There may also be a significance here about plundering the Egyptians because he, Abraham gets rewarded by Pharaoh, even though he goes down into Egypt as a wandering traveler, he comes back richer than he left. And that's also true of the Israelites as a nation. And they, they, um, I mean, the term that they use in scripture is they plundered the Egyptians, but basically the Egyptians gave them lots of gifts to get rid of them at a certain point because of the plagues. And this scenario where Abraham and Sarah are interacting with Pharaoh is a microcosm of what later happens with Moses and Pharaoh and the whole nation where God sends plagues and, and, and the chosen people get to go back and they get to go back richer than they came in. So, um, so that's also part of what's going on here on a literary level in the text. Let's see. 
John Rico, and forgive me, I don't know exactly how to pronounce the last name. It may be Bayot or Bayo, but uh, John Rico says, uh, would you finish your master's in philosophy anytime soon? Um, I'm afraid that the uh, statute of limitations on my master's uh, degree has expired. I would have to retake all of the coursework. And at some point I may get a master's degree. Um, but um, right now I'm pursuing certificates from Rhine in parapsychology. And I'm actually getting close to getting to qualifying for my first certificate from them. Um, I may do a master's degree or even a doctorate in the future, but it will not just yet, and it will require a complete course of studies. I won't be able to just do a thesis and 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 have completed it. They have a time limit on those things. Okay. Colin Causey says, can we hear some detective stories sometimes? Um, okay, so I have been a, a detective and I occasionally tell stories, but there's not a lot of mystery to them. Um, I was, I was, I, I, you know, I occasionally tell stories about uh, things that I have done. I'm not sure if that's what you're referring to, Colin. Um, in terms of true crime stories, uh, actually, we have quite a number of those that I have in reserve, in the reserve for Mysterious World. Um, and some of them involve detection. Some of them involve some amazing twists. Um, a couple. So since we're getting towards the end of uh, of the four hours, I'll tell you, uh, here's here's what's in the reserve, or at least most of what's in the reserve. Um, we have an episode. So we began by telling you what's coming up in January, February. These are other things that you can expect to hear over the course of the next year. They're not on the schedule yet. So they can still move around, and but they should be appearing in the next year. Uh, we have an episode on weighing the soul. This was an experiment that was done in the early 20th century, trying to determine does the soul weigh anything? Does, and there were results suggesting that maybe it weighs something like 21 grams. So we're going to talk about that. We have a two-parter on mysteries connected with the Nazi figure Rudolf Hess. We have an episode on the scientific mystery of synesthesia, in which I'll be showing you what my own synesthesia is like, because I, I have several forms of synesthesia. We have a two-part true crime story coming up uh, about, it's, it's a mystery that was set in 1933 and 1934 in New York, which is the Prohibition era. And it's the story of Iron Mike and the Murder Trust. and Iron Mike would not die no matter what the murder trust tried to do to him. They had formulated like nine different plans to kill Mike, some of which they tried multiple times. And Mike not only did not die, he didn't even realize they were trying to kill him. So, um, and they were his friends. So the story of Iron Mike and the Murder Trust is amazing. And we'll be telling you that. 
We'll also be talking about the gospel of Jesus's wife that made the news a few years ago, the Cash Landrum UFO event that did apparent medical damage to the women who experienced the event. Um, We'll be talking about a secret society from the Civil War era known as the Knights of the Golden Circle. We'll be talking about a priest uh, from uh, Mexico who was martyred during uh, the early 20th century named Toribio Romo. And he has, uh, the first part of that one is going to sound like it's a saint biography, because it is. We're telling the story of him as a saint. But then there's, when, once he dies, there's a twist and we get a mystery. We're, we also will have an episode on cryptids, on thylacines, the Tasmanian wolf or Tasmanian tiger, as they're called. We will be having an episode on the Marian apparition at Zaitun in Egypt. And I'm really hoping to be able to get an, a brief interview for that episode with the Coptic Pope. Um, and so keep that in your prayers, if you would. Um, I'm, I'm, I have a, I have an, I have an inquiry into his office to, um, and I'm, I'm hoping he'll be able to give me five or 10 minutes to talk about Our Lady of Zaytun and, and bless the mysterious world audience. Um, also we have another scientific episode on what's known as the Rosenhan experiment, which was a psychiatric experiment that had a profound impact on uh on psychology and psychiatry but there is a mystery connected with it also um we have and this one i'm going to be really coy about but um there i'm not going to the less you know about it the better you will enjoy it more if you know nothing about it but we're going to be covering a true crime story that involves detection about someone called victim f And the less you know about Victim F, the more amazing the story is. Um, Also, we will have an episode on the D.C. snipers uh, that terrorized Washington, D.C. and surrounding areas in October of 2002 and how we caught them. So that's a detective episode. Um, And then the plan is, and I've already got preliminary agreement for this. Uh, The plan is to then, after we've told you the public story of what happened with the D.C. snipers, the next episode, I'm going to bring on a guest and tell you the private story that is not publicly known about how the the D.C. snipers were caught because they did get caught and the public knows part of the story. But there is a whole other dimension to the story that most of the public has no clue about. And I've already gotten preliminary agreement from the guest to come on and tell her side of that additional dimension that the public doesn't know anything about. So we have quite a, if that's the kind of detective story you're interested in, we actually have quite a few between, you know, Rudolf Hess, uh, there's mystery there and, and that involves true crime. Um, Iron Mike and the Murder Trust involves true crime. Um, 
victim F involves true crime and the DC snipers involve true crime. So we definitely have some true crime detective type stories. Even if you think about it, Knights of the Golden Circle is kind of a detective story. In fact, the Pinkerton detectives are involved in that story. So there's a there's a true crime detection element there as well. So uh, hope that's of assistance. I think I have time for one more question. And this person has used my name in in a big, easy to spot way. And it just vanished. But no. Um, oh, now it is vanished. Um, well, let's take a look. Uh, I will look for a recent one with a Q. Brett Hoffarth says, uh, will your episode about Rudolf Hess cover whether he died of natural causes or was killed in, in Spandau prison? Looking forward to this one. Uh, thank you. And the answer is yes. Um, the Rudolf Hess is a two-parter. And we will be looking at the mysteries of what, of what led to his being taken into custody and the mysteries that are reported after he was taken into custody, including the mystery of exactly how he died in Spandau prison. So glad you're looking forward to that. It was an interesting one to write. And with that, I'm afraid I'm going to have to say uh, good day to everybody. Um, thank you for spending this time with me. I hope you had an enjoyable time. I'm glad to be able to get together with you. Uh, like I said, I will be... Um, I will be uh, doing this annually. That's the plan, at least, for the forthcoming future, at least the foreseeable future. Um, I want to say a special thanks to uh, Deliver Contacts once again for very generously sponsoring this episode. Um, they That was you know going above and beyond for them because they're a regular sponsor. And then when they heard about this episode, they wanted to sponsor it too. And um, so thank you so much, Deliver Contacts. If you wear contacts, or if you think you might want to wear contacts, you know, check out their website and uh, and see whether their solution would be right for you. Also, um, uh, just want to, uh, you know, say I've had a great time discussing things with y'all. I wouldn't have stayed here for uh, four hours if I hadn't. And I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Have a wonderful 2023. So have a happy whole new year. And I'll see you again at Alone Together for Christmas 2023. God bless everybody. <laughs>